All right, I'm ready whenever you are. Let's yeah, just get yeah, the I'm, show on the road. Yeah, fair enough. Let's uh, let's rock and roll, man. Welcome to the Broken Token Podcast. Brent, I have come from afar. It took way too long to get here, so I'm invested in this episode. I say let's rock and roll, buddy. Well, I, I kind of thought you forgot where I live. Well, let me tell I mean, you. you've been here several times, <laughs> but there's selective yeah. amnesia. Yeah, well, it does exist. Uh, about a quarter of the way through the trip, I, I seriously considered just turning around and going back, but I couldn't even turn around and go back. I, I was I was stuck. No, I, You were stuck in, in what? I, I was just, it was just a massive traffic like construction. It, it was. It started as construction, but then it was a five-police car easily six car accident on the on the freeway oh, yeah. that i take to get here to your house it's a con a con uh, con reconstruction yes 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 so we call those a conundrum here in kentucky so it, yeah yeah i listened to a lot of radio no no, no radio i wanted <laughs> we, to listen we to we were though, so but, set to get an early start oh yeah and then you get delayed in traffic and then i, an I have no less than three generations of windows uh operating systems in front of me my normal browsing pc apparently I, and I can't remember from the last time we recorded the one I use for to read show notes and stuff from. Yeah, I, it must have gotten an update, and then I bet I clicked <laughs> update and shut down. And shut down, and then never turned it back on. And never turned it back on. Yeah. And it has been having a stroke. Yeah. yeah. So it finally, I, I gave up and went to back. <laughs> that was a Windows 10 machine. <laughs> Funny enough, uh -huh. no hate mail. It's all good. Yeah. We actually still record the show. We recorded on the same machine that we recorded the very first episode on, mm -hmm. and it just works. I mean, yeah. I keep backups of it and all that, but it's a Windows 8 machine. Yeah. And it just... It it just does one thing. It does one thing. I get it. Yes. And, and then for my browsing machine, I rolled back to the one that I had replaced with the Windows 10 machine that's sitting over there staring at me now booted up finally. Uh -huh. And it's Windows 7. <laughs> so <laughs> once I finally got it to boot... Then uh, I had Firefox on it, and then it decided it needed to update. It's, it's, <laughs> it has been yeah. a technological struggle. Yeah, fair but enough. But here we are. But here we are, yes. Here and I'm are. mainlining coffee at this point. So that's, what, that's, that's, the, that's my current status. Well, th that means this episode ought to go by in about 23 minutes it flat. Could, well, yeah. <laughs> we think they're always going to be short. <laughs> and then they turn out not. So, well, dude, I, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I've actually got to collect myself okay. here for a second. You know, it's like, well, I've just uh, just done this massive road trip to get here. You're all you're all flustered, I'm discombobulated, yeah, discombobulated, and everything. But uh, but man, what has uh, I mean, what, what's what's been going on the past month? I mean, I, I'm glad that we I'm glad that we we kept we kept schedule though. I mean, that that's the thing that I'm proud of because it, it's way too easy not to. You know, so so I'm I'm glad glad that we're here. Glad that we're sitting down. Well, for, I'll, I'll be honest, from an arcade perspective, I have done almost nothing. And I'll get into that why in a second. But um, I know I've talked about this Rally X I've been working on for a buddy of mine for forever. And uh, it's still going to be forever. I've got to spend a little bit of time with it, but I'm still struggling with it. Um, I, I may end up struggling with it in such a way that I break it into a bunch of pieces. But we'll, <laughs> we'll just see how that goes. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll get it. It's It's... It really kind of comes down to just being able to dedicate time to it at yeah. this point. Oh, yes. Um, 
I was waiting on some parts for my red tent, and I had that on the games to get gone list last month. Uh-huh. And those parts have arrived. Okay. Basically, I needed a flyback. So did you get the flyback? I did, yes. Did, did you get a handful of flybacks? I mean, did you buy more than one? or? Well, what I ended up doing... It, so I'm going to sell the game. I don't intend on keeping it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. And then yeah. when I realized I needed a flyback, I realized that the availability of flybacks for those monitors is not, it's not very common. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cause that, it is a, it's not a Sanyo. It's a, it's a sharp, sharp. It's I a keep, sharp. I always yeah. want to say Sony. Yeah. It's like a sharp XM 18 something. I'd have to go back and look, but I think I'm fairly close on that. I believe you are. Yeah. So they're, they're only used, I think, in the red tents, right? They're not as, used as I understand. They're yes. not used in the cocktail, like a Donkey Kong or Popeye or no, anything those like that. Are, no, uh, no, those are. I think those are. Are they? I, so, thought, I thought those were Sanyos too. Are they Sanyos yeah, as well? I believe they are. Yeah. So they're not super common. <laughs> allegedly. 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 <laughs> yeah. They're LCDs. Yeah. We always have to say allegedly. Yes. So the, the, I've, I realized they're not super common. I remembered, refreshed my memory that they're not super common. Yeah. And then looking around, the flyback availability is kind of touch and go because they're just there's not as many to be sold. Yeah, yeah. And then the ones that were out there tend to have some sort of issue, like geometry issue or uh, like not filling the screen or something. You know, it was kind of like an attempt was made. We got 95% (laughs) of the way there, ship it, you know, because we're not going to sell a lot of it. An attempt was made. (laughs) So the the company I bought bought this from, and... Uh, uh, I keep saying uh, this, it's, like, it's this is arcade, po- yeah, it's arcade parts and repair. Arcade I, parts and parts yeah, and repair. Yeah, I'm looking at the link. Yep. Uh, I said uh, again. It's like this is my first podcast, Whitney. It's all good. This is how the day and how, this is how the last two weeks have gone. We for me. we can cut those out. No, because I won't. do the editing and I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I'll even do a post to your edit and it's like nah, it's too much work. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah you're yeah. getting it wrong. Yeah, here, here it is. Like um. There I went again. Yeah. Now, see, now I'm very conscious of it. Yeah. What he does, what the owner of Arcade Parts and Repair does, and I think I touched on this on the last episode, or I can't remember if I, I touched. I think you or did. If I, or if I talked to you about it. Uh, I, no, I think you touched about it on the last okay. episode where he does the testing he of d- the flybacks. He, he does. Yeah. He'll, get a, he'll get a shipment of flybacks, uh-huh. and then he'll, he'll sample test them. And then he'll put them for sale on his site. And that's kind of what I was waiting on. He had some people sample testing these these flybacks. Yeah, okay. And here they are. They finally went available. Now, what I ended up doing, knowing that they're kind of iffy to get a hold of, and knowing that with his testing, there was a fair, you know, anything had happened, but there's a fairly good chance that this will be a, you know, a good run of flybacks. You know, he felt they were good and put them, put them on the site. Now, what he does if he has a failure, I don't know. <laughs> you know yeah, I, I mean, how we, would you like to be the guy who tests flybacks? I mean, well, that, that's I, a tedious job. I'm just thinking, say you ordered a common flyback, something you're going to sell a lot of, a Geo 7. Yeah. And so you're going to order a lot of them because yeah, yes. that's a common monitor. Yes. So what if you order 250, 300 of them, 400 <laughs> of them? And every one you test has a, has a high failure rate or you don't like its results. Yeah. Say you sample test five or even ten. Once you have, do you just eat that? I I mean, that here's the thing: how do you make any money on a per hour basis testing flybacks? Well, he's not testing them all. He's sample testing. Oh, he's sample testing. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. Okay, well, even if you're sample testing, 
you're still spending a lot of hours sample testing. I, I mean, oh yeah, that, and, I mean, and you're sitting on stock. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, God love him for doing it, but man, that's a lot of work. This is my first interaction with the company, and yeah. I've, I've been trading emails, just chit chatting back and forth with whom I assume is the owner. Okay, seems like a great person. So thus far, I've you know, if you have an opportunity, if Arcade Parts and Repair has something you want, hey, check it out because. The vibe I'm getting is that he is he wants to be able to to provide a good product and stand behind it, mm-hmm. and you know, and at the end of the day, unless the name has changed or somebody's taking it over, I can tell you the name of the Chinese company that makes all the arcade all the flybacks that we get in these arcade games. Yeah, I've even looked at going to that company, and because like I would I was buying large quantities, fairly large for just you know, a, a, a hobbyist in his basement. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was bearing, buying fairly large quantities from Bob Roberts. And then there was another company and he, he's gone. He would buy the, the common ones, the seven thousands, the geo sevens and a couple others in pretty good bulk. And I could get the geo seven flybacks. Now this has been a few years, yeah, but yeah. they were sub $18 a flyback. Uh-huh. And I was buying a bunch from him. Yeah. So I got to the point where I was like, well, what if I just go right to the tap? What if I go to the source? Yeah. I, and I never ended up just fall. It, it, I didn't want to just get into the middle of trying to do the final negotiations with someone that didn't natively speak English. And yes. I didn't natively speak Chinese and yeah. trying to sort all that out. And yeah. I just let somebody else take that. And, and pay them the the what their profit margin was to do it. Yeah. So, I, so there's value in the yeah. uplift there. Yeah, no doubt. So regardless... I went ahead knowing I'm going to sell this thing. I actually bought two flybacks. Mm-hmm. One of the monitors has the original flyback. The other will have a replacement. And I'm just going to include that as a Benny. Uh, and I'll just bake it in the price mm-hmm. or just yeah. use it as a selling feature. Yeah. Yep. And, and I'll give it to whoever buys buys it so that they've already got a – I, I want to say supposedly uh-huh. because – you know anything could happen. Yeah, oh yeah. But they've got a they've got a flyback that has a super high probability of being a good flyback. Yeah, yeah. And they don't have to hunt for it if they need it down the road. If they need it down the road, yeah. So finding that, I mean, I'm looking at his site right now, and he's got thirty ish in stock. I, I mean, I'm he sure- had forty two or forty three when I bought mine, and I've had I've only had mine for three or four days five days oh so that's yeah that's a decent drop and i was checking periodically i had a tab saved on my on my phone Uh i'd refresh it and a tab on my main pc (laughs) and just watch the number yeah Yeah. and i it might have been a week or so and i didn't refresh it and suddenly like at 11 30 at night i'm sitting down to relax and i hit refresh and i bought them right then because i i didn't know how fast that would drain yeah for sure yeah i get it so two of i think he had 43 so two of them Remind, and mm-hmm. you say, "What's the number now?" I think it's thirty-three. When I when I looked just a minute ago, so he sold about eleven in a week or so, week yeah. and a half. Yeah, which is, I mean, for such a niche product, I mean, that's really, I mean, it's pretty decent. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're kind of sitting on them waiting, you're in the same boat that I'm in. You know, you you want to you want to keep your red tent running, or you need it for your red tent now. What do you do? What do you do? That's exactly right. Now, and I did go ahead and buy from him a flyback, and I have to go back and see what monitor it is. A flyback for the hyperdrive. I still have my hyperdrive. Haven't sold it. Haven't done anything with it. But I just got to where I wasn't liking the focus. The focus. 
I've noticed it takes a, a fair bit of warm up time more than I'm comfortable with before it locks in. Uh huh. And then it could just be me, but it's like it doesn't look as sharp as it. Sh- I feel that it should. Yeah. And I can dial it in. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. And then I'll have it on running for a bit. You know, a couple of days later, and then it wanders. And out. I'm like, that. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. And generally, that's the sign of you know I'm starting to have problems. The focus block is squirreled up and. I just, I'd rather just replace it. So I went ahead when I bought the two red tent flybacks from him, I bought one for the hyperdrive and I'm going to do that one as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I did kind of get a little bevy of flybacks. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. I mean, you got to have them. And then other than that, I'm going to be honest, Whitney, arcade stuff I haven't done. I haven't touched the uh, retro chip tester pro. I've still got the paperwork sitting there on my desk where I could put together the, you know, the bomb and get all the parts. Yeah. Haven't done that. My 3D printer is still uh, sitting on my like a a temporary table in my office, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm at the point of wiring the bed leveler. Uh-huh. And um, I got an email the other day, and I was a little disheartened about this. TH3D now has a subscription requirement for their firmware. Yeah, so I was, uh, you and I were talking about this just a just a, a, a small amount before we, you know, hit the big red record button, and I got the same email as well, and I was, it's kind of bothered by that because it's like, okay, how do you, how do you turn, 3D printer firmware into a subscription model when the printer operates just fine without being connected to the internet in any way, shape, or form. And the only thing that I could come up with, and again, I haven't read the email. I just glanced it. I did the roll eyes, and then I moved on to to the next thing that, that I needed to attend to at the time. But I'm sitting here wondering, it's like, well, maybe it's a, a subscription service for when you want to build a new version of the firmware. That's the way I took it. Yeah, or, or you want to change a feature in the firmware uh, you want access to that to that firmware building portal, which is a very nice portal, by the way. Uh, TH3D has offered that at no cost for several years, and I'm sure they're at a position where it's like, you know what, we probably need to monetize that because there's value there. And trust me, there is value there. I mean, it's 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 a good service that they provide. That that's what I was thinking. You know, I should have pulled that email. I. I read it. So one of the points they made... Let me, let me see if I can find it. So one of the points they made is, is they they kind of needed to offset the cost. So, so let me even back up. Yeah. They, they, write a, they, write their, they write a firmware for a bevy of printers, okay? And you can, you can put that firmware on their board or on... Keep me honest here, Whitney. Is it just on their board and these printers, or will they also? Oh. Can they also flash? Oh, yeah. You can. You can. Well, at the time that I was working with it, you can just do straight Marlin firmware. And if you know what you're doing and you know the parameters of the board that you're running, you could have their site build your copy of Marlin, and then you flash it to your printer and you're done. You know, so you don't have to install. Visual Studio Code. You don't have to download Marlin, you know, like pull the Marlin repository off of GitHub. You don't have to do the compilation so, on your own. Do they also write their own firmware or is it just they the do. Mar- Okay. No, they do. They have what's called a unified, unified, fir- a unified firmware that, that runs on their EZ board series. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so I've got the, e, one of the EZ boards mm-hmm. and I, and, and I would go 
to their site, get the unified firmware, and then I thought that I had to build it locally. No, it builds on their website, and then you get a final bin file that you download and, and put on the SD card and just pop it in your printer and go. Oh, I thought I had to, to install... Um, Oh my gosh, what was it called? Not .NET. Um, Visual Studio. Visual Studio. No, no. Visual Studio Code. You, you, if you want to build the firmware locally, that's a way to do okay, it. Okay, okay. But through, but through TH3D's site, you can just log on to their web portal and go through a series of drop downs and say, okay, I've got this processor, I'm running these steppers, I've got this front, you know, this hot end, you know, here's my X, Y, and my Z offsets, all, all that kind of stuff, you know, to, to start. And then you can have their site build the firmware, it compiles it, and then it presents you with a download link and you just go and put on an SD card and you're done. And see, and I think that's what they're trying to monetize because that's a very nice service that they provide. So here's the first paragraph. We are excited to share important updates. So first of all, they're setting a false positive, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. this sounds like, what's that uh, <laughs> management term, the 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 critical sandwich or something where you start with a good comment then, yeah. you, then you have in the middle yes. uh, uh, like a negative and but you follow up with a positive with a positive yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a way to it's a way to deliver bad news wrapped in yeah. good yeah so this seems like this has already got spin in it which i don't like that that you don't Comp, say what it is. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just put it out there. You yes. know, when, when like when enterprises started going to calling everybody associates, not I'm an employee. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the end of the day. I get it. It's yeah. Just, anyway, here we are. Here, we are excited to share some important updates <laughs> regarding our unified two firmware after careful consider careful consideration, Whitney. Yeah. How do I know? Because they tell me careful yeah. consideration. This is how this is how this stuff goes. We have made the decision to switch from a free model to a paid subscription model. The change is necessary due to the high cost of a costs associated with hosting the firmware, purchasing printers for development, and the significant amount of time invested in its creation. Now, what I didn't get into was what this cost is. You know, so special offer for existing users during the initial launch of the paid model will provide a one-week window where you can purchase a three-month subscription for free or get $5 off the one year. So we've... you and I have had this email. Let's see. This is dated uh, this July is, 16th. Yeah, that's July 16th. Is. That's mine as well. So I've never used the service. I've never pulled one firmware yet. So I, I'm out of the one week and you're out of the one week at, at this point. So we, I guess we don't get our complimentary three month or $5 off the one year. Now, what it doesn't say is what the, what it costs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and so, you know, just kind of reading through this, they don't exactly say what the what, what the issues are or what 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 your experience will be when you stop paying the subscription. That That's what I'm the most curious so, about. Are you well, I can't imagine there's no way there's no way you can guarantee a printer. Well, the printer doesn't natively have Internet. No, it doesn't. So I, I don't or, see or why a way the, to 
call home or check out. It, it doesn't. So it's got to be for builds. It, I think it has to be for builds. This has to be for builds because I can tell you, I, the firmware, any firmware that I put on, or any firmware that I've ever seen that I put on uh, either of my Creality's, it has no dependency on internet connectivity whatsoever. And when you turn the printer on, it has no concept of date or time. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. None. So I don't see how the firmware, quote unquote, ages out. I, I just don't. Unless the firmware's writing something, the SD card, who knows? I'd have to dig into it. But here's... Uh, <laughs> here's the issue i don't really know that i care because because (laughs) once i get the printer up and running to a point to where it's it's literally turnkey i don't really feel the need to go back in and uh and mess with it unless i'm changing some something physical from a parameter perspective like a different abl a different auto bed leveler different hardware that would require me to change the firmware and i i've yeah. So you must be able to put the unified firmware directly on boards that aren't just their oh, board. Yes. Uh-huh. It, yes, you can. It, I went to you I went to their site, then unified two firmware and it lists Creality stock, Creality this, oh, yeah, yeah, Creality yeah. that, yeah, big see, tree. That, that's why I'm thinking that's why I'm thinking it's you're paying for the build process is what you're paying for. So it says five to eighteen dollars select options. Yeah. Three months is five dollars. One year is eighteen dollars. Yeah, I'm curious to see how how the industry goes on this. I mean, because this is this is the first that I've seen this type of offering being made, and I'm curious whether or not other uh, you know other shops are, are going to follow this. But again, it's something I'm going to have to look into. I but mean, I get it. There, if 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 it was just for their board uh-huh that's one thing they then they could bake the cost of their development and their support into what they're selling the hardware for but they're making this available for solvo printers yes. ender 3 printers oh yeah i mean the list goes on and on and on as as to as to how the marlin firmware as to what the marlin firmware can run on and the last i checked so was, no this says this doesn't say marlin this says unified 2 firmware well they're unified firmware well uh, let's put it this is way is it marlin based it is marlin based okay yes it, so the, they're taking okay. marlin and they're adapting it they are and let me say this it was Marlin based the last time I checked on it, and I run Unified Firmware on both of mine, and they are Marlin based. So then that makes me think: Is Marlin GPL? Is it GPL? Yes. So it if is. it's GPL, you can't ha- take a derivative by the GPL license. I could, was it GNU something licensing? Yeah, yep, it is. By, by GPL licensing, you can't resell it, but can you take it and fork it? And make money from it. I, that I don't know because I'm just not I, I'm just not well versed in that, uh, you know, outside of the basics. Mm-hmm. But the Unified Two firmware that may be something that they've created themselves. I, I mean, it, it, I it very very possibly could be. I, I would need to I would need to try it out and see. But but the the issue is is that both of my printers run absolutely perfectly. Then don't worry about so, it. So so I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. You know that's what it turns into. Well, I'm going to have to do something. So I'm I'm probably going to have to chuck a fiver at them 
unless I can email them when I finally get to the point of turning my printer on and saying, hey, I just bought this. It's been sitting on a table. Yeah. What I did you do, all do? I would do that. Yeah. I, I would approach it as a, hey, can you help me out? Because this wasn't like this when I when I bought when I bought this this hardware and then see and then see what they would do to help you out, which I'm sure they will. They're reasonable people. There's no doubt. Well, and, and unless I've missed it, like I'm scanning through here and I don't see their board listed. So their board is what? Uh, it's easy something. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I think it's just called the Easy Board. Um, I forget. I forget the model number on it. If it's like a one or a two. So I or see Creality like Stock four dot x dot x printers four dot two dot seven board. There's a donation page. Uh, firmware for Creality two dot x boards. Ender Solvo Big Tree Tech. Sunlu, any cubic. Yeah, see, and all of those are all like Ender. Those are all Creality compatible. You know, they're, I, they're, I would hesitate to call them clones, but a lot of people call them clones because they they essentially they they've taken Creality's formula and they've just kind of copied it from from that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just but I don't see where I could go buy this subscription. I wonder if the Easy Boards actually uh, if, if they if they get that um, feature for, for for no additional cost. And that may be where you have to contact Tim uh, there at, uh, there at TH3D and just ask. Yeah. I, That's what I, would I don't do. even see the easy board on here. Now all products, easy home, smart products. I don't know what those are. Oh, yeah. Amount it's, it's TH3D studio.com. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's uh, smart lamps and smart plugs oh, with then, their branding on it. Okay, then that's then yeah, that's something where you definitely have to contact him and ask him. Yeah, I'm like I don't even. I uh, hope hopefully they still sell their boards. I'm sure I'm sure they do. I'll have to I, I'd have to look at it as well. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, all that being said, <laughs> oh. the, the saga of the 3D printers go on. Yeah, yeah. So we're all my attention is is gone to circle back real quick is I mentioned that I had, uh, acquired another, another, a car, uh, I say another, cause I've already, I've got a, a firebird as a trans am as it is, but I acquired another firebird, pretty special one about a month or so, I guess six or eight weeks ago at this point. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because you talked about it on the last show, yeah, you talked about it on the last show. So it had to be before then. So I've made the, I've made the decision. I'm actually going to go to the trans am nationals this year. Okay. So, I've I've went up to Dayton. It's in Dayton, Ohio, and this year it's August twenty fifth through the twenty seventh. Um, I've gone up the last couple years actually with the lady that owned this car, and we went up on Saturday, uh, went to the show field for a little bit, walked around the swap meet, and then there's a car cruise in a city called Tip City, not too far out of Dayton. Yeah, and it just imagine small town USA, and you close down downtown, and then you just randomly pour hundreds of Firebirds, Transams, and Formulas in the middle of it. Yeah, it's really it's really neat. Yeah. It's just it's more fun than the show because everything's just kind of jumbled. You see, you see stuff that you don't ex- you might just walk past because you're looking across a row of the same. Uh, uh, generation and same year bracket a car, mm-hmm. you know, things really stand out when they're, they're all kind of mixed up when they're mixed up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, when you've got variety. Yep. So we've gone up to that, but I, I haven't been, 
I haven't taken, I used to go every year. I would take my, my trans am and I have not gone in years and I just kind of got a little burned out on it. Got a little burned out on the car thing and spent a lot of time in the arcade mm-hmm. world. Yeah. So I've made the the decision. I'm going this year. I'm going to the full show. I'm mm-hmm. putting a car in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, gonna gonna do it like I used to do it. Yeah, so that's that's cool. To do that, I, mean, I had some car prep to do. It needed some mecha- minor mechanical stuff just to kind of get sorted out and new set of tires and. Um, it's the, my next step is I'm, I'm about ready to di- dive into the detail work. I'm going to do the cosmetic stuff and just, she, she kept really kept after the car, but I'm just going to go through it. I'm mm-hmm. going to detail the engine compartment, going to uh, buff it out and just, and put the show, the show polish I mm-hmm. like to use on it. Yeah, I, I have a link it. in here. I didn't realize you used it too, Whitney. Yeah, I yeah. use a, a product called Zaino. Zaino, man. There's it's, it's fantastic. If if you have a a car that you want to show, or even just like a a, a daily driver that you really want to keep keep after, mm-hmm. Zeno doesn't go on like a wax, if if you will. Just, it, take a look at the site. There's a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's zenostore.com is what it is. Z a i n o store.com. It it kind of reads like a bad infomercial. It's better than it was ten years ago. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But the claims, I'll tell you, the claims are spot on. I mean, I, I, I've done it on, used it for years on my Trans Am. I've used it on my uh, Fiero Pace car. Mm-hmm. And when you put that car out in the light, it looks, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's a mile deep. I mean, it <laughs> is, it, 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 I, I've looked at the car, but like the Trans Am, because it's, it's, uh, um, it's got a lot of body panel on the side Mm -hmm. and it's like, I have to have sunglasses on this Mm -hmm. thing. Just, it's just pops. So it's, I really, really like it. And uh, a friend of mine, a guy used to actually work for, he was a Corvette guy. It made the rounds in the Corvette community years and years ago. Uh, Eckler's, I think it's Eckler's one of the Corvette parts vendors. Yeah. It's either Eckler's or probably mid America. One of the two. I think, think he got it from Eckler's. Okay. Th- they would sell it. Uh, it was popular enough in the Corvette community. The mm-hmm. Acura NSX community really took after it. Yeah, Some oh, yeah. the Porsche community. Yep. And and it's uh you just gotta read the instructions because you don't put it, you don't apply it like turtle wax. Like turtle wax <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. It's actually the less you use the better. Yeah. It's good so. it's good stuff. There's no doubt. So anyway, that's on the list. The big the big thing to work through though is is the tow rig mm-hmm. because the the truck I've I've what the the truck I've got I've got an F three fifty and I got that before I started arcade, messing with arcade games I got that to haul a trailer because I was doing so much with car shows mm-hmm. and about the time I got the F three fifty I also bought an enclosed car trailer so I actually looked at the 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 plate on the side of the trailer Whitney. I bought that thing in 2003. Okay. So that trailer is 11 years old at this point. Yeah. Um now hold on 2000, t- 2003 is yeah, 20 years it's, old. It's what am I saying? My gosh. You're right. It's 20 years. I don't know where yeah. I pulled that from. Yeah. It's 20 years old at this point. And I've kept after it mm-hmm. and it's been stored covered, mm-hmm. but still things happen. And yeah. it was definitely, it was definitely due for tires. Yeah. So tires expire. A lot of people don't realize that. Oh yeah. But tires expire. Did, yes. Did, so the last time I used that trailer, Whitney, mm-hmm. I've been in this house 13 ish years. Okay. And this is probably where I pulled the 11 from. Yeah. So about 
10 or 11 years ago, yeah. I took my pace car Fiero to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. <laughs> they had a car uh-huh. show. Yeah. So have you, you ever been to the, the track at Indy? Uh, uh, yes, I have. So the I've center... Been, I've been one time. Yes. The infield is like a city. Mm-hmm. And like they said, okay, the show is on such and such road. I'm like, so this show is on a road? And I think it's like some road off the side of the track. Yeah. Once you get into the into the track proper, the roads the are in the in the infield are named mm-hmm. like city streets. Mm-hmm. Okay, and w- what the deal was is it was the hundred. We could probably look this up to get my year exactly right, but it was the hundredth anniversary of the first Indianapolis Five Hundred. It wasn't the hundredth race because there was years due to World War Two and the like. Uh, where they and other things where they didn't run a race, mm-hmm. so they didn't run a race for 100 contiguous years. But it was the hundredth anniversary of the first Indianapolis 500 race. Yeah, okay. And down the road that go that bisects the track on its long axis, they had a car show during Carb Week. Okay. And Carb Week is that week leading up to the 500 where they're doing testing and they're doing qualifying and all that fun stuff and. What they did is, is you had to actually apply for this show. You just couldn't show up. And it wasn't, and I've had to apply to shows before. You had to send pictures and they had to accept the car. Oh, I see. And it was a hundred bucks. Yeah. But here was the cool thing. You got pit passes. We got a really nice medallion Mm -hmm. that got us into the pits. We had pit access in and out all that we wanted through the weekend. And then I think it was Saturday night. They closed and in the, in the infield at one end of the track, is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, where they have winning cars from from uh, various years, and they rotate yeah. out the display. Yeah. And then under that is a garage where they keep their pace cars. <laughs> so they close down during Carb Week. They close down the museum, and they had a catered dinner for all for everyone that brought a car. Okay. And it that's you, very nice. And you got that for two people. Yeah. I was like, uh, I was kind of shocked it was only $100. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yes. Here's where I was going with that. On that trip, you're talking about tires have expiration time, kind of like flybacks. Oh, yeah. It had been some time since I had, had taken my truck on any, like, real trip. Yeah. Tires look brand new. <laughs> well, they'd aged out. They'd aged out, yes. I didn't get maybe... An hour, 45 minutes out of Louisville. Uh-huh. And then I just start feeling this. I started feeling this shudder in the truck. I let off the gas. Uh-huh. And this, I'm, I'm pulling an enclosed trailer, yeah. a 24 foot enclosed trailer. Yeah. And I kind of start to set up high in my seat and start looking at the mirrors. And mm-hmm. just as I kind of set up high, all you know what breaks loose. Yeah. What happened was, is I lost the tread on my rear right tire. Yeah. Passenger side rear tire on the truck. Yeah. I, and that wasn't due to wear. That was due to age. Due to age. No, yes. the, the tread was beautiful. Yes. It was just flapping around the tire. Yeah. And when I say flapping around the tire, it, it it had separated all but maybe a little less than a third. Uh-huh. Wrecked my bed. Yeah. I had to have the bed replaced. And my insurance, fortunately, was able to... They were, they didn't total... Well, those trucks have such value, Whitney. Oh, yes. Now, it's an older truck. It's a 99. Mm-hmm. You got to figure though. Ten years ago was twenty um, thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. So the truck was already 
14 years old at that point. Yeah. But it still had so much value that they found and replaced the bed for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it wasn't, there was, it wasn't worth totaling. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad they did. Cause I, I probably would have re- re- done the same myself. I would have tracked down a bed because the truck is a solid truck. Yeah. I still own that truck. Anyway, first of all, if that would have happened at highway speeds, I really think that I'd have been rolled over in a ditch because uh-huh. it was violent. Yeah. Obviously, I could make an argument. I think the trailer saved me because I could hold on the brakes. The trailer brakes were also assisting in slowing me down. The tongue weight of the trailer kept the rear end from just going like everywhere bucking flapping in the wind yes but i could also make the argument that the weight of the trailer probably stressed it and made that happen Mm -hmm. so it's a give and take Mm -hmm. but like i said it completely destroyed the bed of my truck and went finally through the the uh the tread it got into the nose of the trailer damaged it i ended up having to haul it up later to the trailer manufacturer and they had to fix the nose of the trailer for me yeah yeah the truck sat there on an inflated tire because the casing was still holding air. Yeah. The tread went bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, at this point, the long story short is... It's like you peeled an onion. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Long story short, on an arcade podcast, a video game, yeah. gaming podcast, Brent does not play with tires. No, and you can't. I do not. No. In any no. situation. Nope. I, I have, like, when I pull the, the old Trans Am, I say older, it's yeah. the 89 Trans Am I've got. For, for the tires are Whitney, they probably don't have. If they have two hundred miles on them, I will kiss you right on your head. Yeah, they're but, but they get replaced. But they get replaced. Yes, I know, I'm, man. I'm with you, and that and that's the reason why you <laughs> you have a spare tire in your trunk in the trunk of your car. You don't run that thing. You use it to get you where you need to go, and then you then you yes. stop because hundred percent, hundred percent. Because that thing will age. Uh, how many how many times do you replace your tires and never touch the spare? Always. Always. Now, yeah. Hey, when I did the last time I did tires <laughs> Automot- on the truck, automotive tips right yeah. here. Yeah. When I did tires on the the truck has a full size spare. Yeah. Five tires. Yeah. That's now it. I bought Michelin's for the for the truck itself and i bought a slightly cheaper cheaper, yes i'd still trust it yeah definitely trust or else i wouldn't buy buy it but i went down a step for Uh the spare yeah okay yep and actually at some point in time about i don't know maybe a year ago i'd have to go back and look and how long i've had those tires right after i think i think i had them about a year and at this point now I'd had them a couple months and I came off the, exp- the, the exit here off the expressway by the house. <clears throat> Pardon me. And some uh, construction truck or something had dumped a bunch of crap. And I ended up with a rolled piece of metal that basically formed a straw in one of those tires. Oh, man. And it just instantly just started bleeding air. Yeah. So that was replaced with road warranty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with your road hazard. Yep. About a week later... I realized there was a bolt, a bolt in the other rear tire. Wow. Now, it was pluggable. And uh-huh. when they plug those tires, they take the tire off. Yeah. And there's a big patch, if you will. I mean, a big as in the one that's in this tire is probably four inches in diameter. That's, it's made for that. That's big. It's a big plug. It, well, it's a patch from the inside. Oh, it's a patch from the inside. From the inside. I see. I see. Okay. And it's, it's made 
and rated for that for such a tire, knowing that tire has a weight rating. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. Okay. Now, th- and that that was repairable as part of the road hazard on that tire. That tire's in my shed, patched, and I bought a brand new Michelin tire and put it on that truck. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I don't play. Yeah, you can't, man. You can't. That's Not, one thing that'll ground you faster than anything. Yeah. yeah. So in, anyway. This is a gaming podcast. So, 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 <laughs> so it's, uh, to make a story short, you've bought a lot of tires for truck oh, and trailer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the trailer, I bought new tires, five tires, cleaned yeah. the spare, repacked all the bearings on both axles. I did uh, did some electric brake. Uh, it's got electric brakes on it on both axles. So I did a little work on those, got those back up to snuff. Yeah. The tr- it's so old, there wasn't really... There was LED lights, but they were super expensive. So mm-hmm. new LED tail lights, got to stick those in. Uh, you'll love this, Whitney. I'm gonna. Uh, I haven't done this yet, but it's on my list here soon. As I'm gonna get rat- new, a new set of tie downs, Ooh. which are big Mondo ratchet oh, straps. Oh man, you had you had me at ratchet. So yes. When, when I the I, I I haul in that trailer, I've hauled a Fiero, uh-huh. and I haul a an a third generation Firebird. Uh-huh. So an '89 Trans Am. And what I do is once I figure out where the car goes. The front straps I tape up, so I pull the car in, and if I get somebody to help me, I'll have them reach under and hook the straps, and mm-hmm. I'll back the car up on the straps, mm-hmm. and then I'll leave it neutral and get out, and I'll put the axle strap or the rear strap on it and tie it down. Mm-hmm. Okay, but once I get it set, then I have a set of straps for that car. Yeah. So that way I don't have to monkey with ha- figuring out how to reload the trailer. Yeah. Heck yes. So yeah, that's coming. Um, put a new battery in it because the trailer's got a battery for the lights, and it also acts as a backup for the brakes if the trailer breaks loose it'll activate the brakes and then just from sitting all the there's some screws in the body that get you know break out in a little rust and i don't like that's that's how i've got a trailer that's 20 years old i keep after it yeah yeah i get it so yeah the the next step is to go through and uh a screw replacement i've got a big bag of screws for it and i'll go through and (laughs) and sort that out and the truck too just because I've learned lessons and I guess if anything here, I guess on a gaming podcast, I'm, I'm communicating some lessons to people. I just actually went and had it checked over and sure enough, I had a little play in the steering. Yeah. And then in those Fords, there's a, a, an adjustment in the steering box where you can tighten that up from just normal wear. Uh And I said, Hey, give it a once over. I'm about ready to do this. Took it to the shop that I trust and that's one of the things they specialize in. Yeah. I said, I think it needs a touch up in the steering. Well, actually, it had some worn steering parts. Uh-huh. Got those replaced, realigned. And uh, I'm even going to go ahead and it's time. Uh, I, I'm going to update the stereo to something that's modern and Bluetooth. Oh, yeah. And even the brake controller. Have, Whitney, have you ever tro- towed a trailer with electric brakes? Oh, yeah. So my F-250 has, uh, has got a brake controller. I installed that. And the... To the dual axle trailer, the covered trailer oh, that's that I right, bought has, yeah, got, that's right. has got electric brakes. Yep. Yeah, so that prompted me to go down that whole road on my F-250, yes. Well, the controller that's in mine was mm-hmm. a fairly decent controller for the day when mm-hmm. I bought that truck. Mm-hmm. I've had that truck 20 years. Okay. But it's basically, it's a by today's standards, it's uber basic. Yeah. It's, when you apply the brakes, for those that have never done this, you can have electric brakes on your trailer that need an electric signal to activate. And mm-hmm. I won't get into how all it works, but you have a controller in the cab that does that. Mm-hmm. So 
the controller I've got, when you tap the brakes, it just starts on a timed interval applying brake pressure. Oh, And I it see. ramps up. Oh, I see. So you can set the maximum uh-huh. and how fast the ramp is. Yeah. And that's, ve- that's, I mean, it was a fairly decent controller in its day. Mm-hmm. Now... What you do now? They're they're basically they've got a gyro in them or a motion sensor in them, and they can detect how hard you're braking yeah. the vehicle and then apply the brakes accordingly. They're proportional. Yes, yeah. It, so, it's one to one with the truck. That, that's it. And that, the controller that I've got is probably three years old now, but it it is proportional like that. Do you remember what you bought? Uh, no, I'll have to go back. I, I can I can send you a link to what I bought. Oh, I already bought one. Oh, okay, yeah. fair enough. Oh, the one I bought has has a, a multi-trailer memory and a digital display. Yeah, and- yeah, mine's got a digital display. It, it's nice because when you, you know, the harder you press on the brake pedal, you can feel the trailer digging in, you know, okay. as, as, as that proportional capability is brought online i mean you can tell that the trailer is doing as much work to slow you down as the truck is but the trailer's not doing more or it's not doing less it's and, doing equal and that's what i would fight with my controller yes. yeah yeah if i just wanted to kind of cr- if i need like highway speeds if i just needed to slow you, you couldn't do it no i'd have to apply the truck brakes and yeah. if the trailer got more i'd have more braking than I wanted. Yeah. I'd have to come off the truck brakes, then back on the truck brakes to reset the brake controller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this, the, the controller that I've got, it sounds like the one that you're going to install. It's where the, the brakes on the trailer become an extension of the brakes on the truck and they work in unison with each other. They're, they're synchronized is probably the best way to say it. Back when I first yeah. did this to, uh, was, did you buy a Takashna? Yes, that that's yes, that, that is, that's who that's, I bought. That's what I got. Yeah. Yep. So if you that's got it. one with the display, you probably got the the P three model or whatever it's called, which is what I bought. Yeah, you'll like it. You'll yep. you'll, you'll really like it because was it, it, it? I mean, it knows if a trailer is hooked up or not. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's you, got a ton of ton of features. When it's I nice. first when I first started doing this, they made the same company, however it's pronounced. To, I, th- I think it's Taconcha. Taconcha. I think it's Taconcha. Yeah. They made a controller that you plumbed into the brake line so that it read the brake pressure. Oh, oh gee. No, no, That's how no. they did it back then. Yeah. When I first yeah. started towing trailers yeah, that, with brakes. I, I get it. No, this, unfortunately, this doesn't need that. No, <laughs> so, no. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what I've been focusing on. I've been, I'm Gee. kind of excited, Whitney. And when, I mean, when, when I pulled that trailer out, it, it was, I was like, I wasn't looking forward to it because I knew that it was, there was work ahead of me. Yeah. But I was really kind of looking forward to it. I'm like, I've got this trailer. Uh, I, I've got, I've, I've still got all the equipment that I had. Yeah. And with a couple updates and a little maintenance. Yeah. It's still good. It's all still good. Mm-hmm. I just knew there was some work ahead of me. And it's just a shift, Whitney. Yeah. You know, it's honestly been, I'd have to, I'd have to look it up, but it's probably been about, it's been at least nine years, maybe 10. I can't remember when we went to Indy. A good friend of mine and I, we went up there together. Uh, actually, she came up later. It's my best friend in the world. I, I, she, I probably mentioned her on the podcast before, Christy. Mm-hmm. She had to drive up a little later. It's probably been nine or 10 years since I've had that thing out of the, the trailer shed. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a, a fun time. And I, I mean, I totally get, you know, I totally get wanting to kind of 
do something different, I guess, or do something parallel mm-hmm. and just kind of expand the, you know, expand the mind a little bit. It's, it, it's, it's going to be fun. Uh, you just got to take pictures, man. That's, that's <laughs> what I want to see. Yeah. Well, and I tell you what, now I will circle this back to the, the, the heart of the podcast. Okay. A very good friend of mine, one of the very first people I met, which seems strange because I'm in Kentucky, Louisville, and this is Dayton. Mm-hmm lives in Dayton, Ohio with his family. Yeah. And that's about three plus hours away it is, from here. It is. Just, just, just for people who don't have a frame of reference. Ooh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thank, oh yeah. Good yeah. point. Yep. So the first working game, like I bought this game as a working game uh-huh. versus the first group of games I got was a trailer full of broken games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The very first working game I bought from him. Yeah. And I've been friends with him ever since. And, um, so he's up in Dayton. So I get to see that we stay in touch constantly all these years. And, um, I haven't got to see him in a few years, like face to face. They've actually came down. You've met him face to face Mm -hmm. because they've been to Louisville Arcade Expo. They, they brought their, his family down to, to Arcade Expo Mm -hmm. a few years back. So that was pre COVID, but I'm going to get to see him and his family and I already know I'm bringing a game back. <laughs> yeah, are you really? So, yeah, I'm bringing a game back. Do you know what from, the game is? I do. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm not going to press you on it. Okay, so no, I don't mind mentioning it. Oh, okay. I, you know, I and, didn't know what your comfort level was. So I have a carnival. Uh-huh. And car- people are like carnival, whatever. I, some people like it, some people don't. It's not a bad game at all. I remember playing carnival in... I've always loved carnival. Okay. I, and I remember playing it in the... It was a game right inside the front door in a pizza place that my uncle owned. You remember my uncle, Whitney? He had the Panther. Uh, he had that the uncle. Panther. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> then we know that uncle had great taste. Yeah. <laughs> so it was right inside the door at his uh, pizza place he had. Okay. For, for several years. Got it. I played it there, an actual cabinet. Uh-huh. That was the same place that in the back in the arcade they had a, ma- a major havoc. Oh wow! Believe it or not. Oh wow! Yeah. So I've always liked it, and anytime I had a sixty and one Jamma board, uh-huh. I-, I played a ton of Carnival. Okay. Years ago, I got a Carnival uh-huh. as a part of a deal. I haven't even plugged it in. Yeah. And it's out, and it was it was in the will keep list. Yeah. And I still have it out out in my garage. Okay. My buddy in Ohio just bought a bunch of games, and in it was a pretty darn nice carnival okay nicer than mine any cabarets in that lot no there was not sorry Uh, oh you'd have been the first one i appreciate that yeah yeah so that is gonna come back from dayton with me oh well good yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna move mine mine on yeah mine's complete yeah but this one's just this one's just nicer just nicer even if mine was run i've never even plugged the one i've got in Mm -hmm. but even if the one i had was in the game room already i'd I'd upgrade because i mean that's what we kind of do yeah yeah. collection that's true yeah yeah Yeah, very true so i am bringing back a game from dayton from the car show (laughs) that's awesome well see then then you bring it full circle right there so and carnival's a cool that check your tires that yes before you haul your carnival i i mean carnival's a cool cab i mean i love the look of it i like the color scheme the white and the red it just it just works it's a good looking game so i'm excited yeah i I get it well i mean game i guess updates for me brent are should i talk about should you talk about if 
start with this. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Cause for, yeah, your for, updates. Okay. So for, you brought this to me. Go ahead. I, I did. I did. So, so, uh, earlier, um, it, it, I, we'll call it earlier in, um, in, in the, the month between uh, podcast recordings here, uh, I got to meet up with uh, with uh, good good friends, friend of the show, Jason Aaron, Troy Gibbs, uh, Dell from Dell's Arcade, Mike Thomas. I mean, oh, did they have their? Mm-hmm. Oh, that yeah. has already come and gone, hasn't it? Hey, come and gone, yeah. You mentioned that to me, Whitney, and I am I'm so sorry, guys. Yeah, because I you talked, you said something to me about kind of going to that. Yeah, and yeah. No, it's all it's all. It's good. been a. It's. I didn't think it could get any more of a zoo here, and yeah. it's been a zoo. I, I get it, but but I I was able to I was able to get away and uh, went went and visit visited with the guys, and uh, Jason made sure that uh, that he returned a favor because uh, he said that uh, while while they were at LAX, uh, you gave him or gifted him some Pac Man soap as one does as as one often does, and so he said, hey, I've got something for Brent. I want you to give this to him, and you know he like you know he, he did that move where you. Know, you reach in the jacket and you don't know okay so when spongebob does that he pulls out a spatula you know when the coyote does that he pulls out something from acme corporation you know and i was wondering it's like well i wonder what jason you know what what jason's gonna produce here and he pulled out this 3d printed um what's the best way what's the best way to say it's a trailer hitch it's a trailer hitch cover and see in this segue so perfectly did you with with what you've been talking well, I'm about? Gonna, I'm going to talk about this for a second. Yeah, do gonna, that. Then I'm going to blow your mind. Oh, oh fair enough. I, and I am and I am going to get a picture of that and put that this, on Twitter. So this is a because th- I've started doing that it, now. So if you're when your draw bars out of your trailer hits, you got a, a square hole in the a square, back. A square and, hole. And he <laughs> and he knows me because it's a larger one for a for a for a, a big truck. For a yeah. big truck. Yes. It's not whatever the smaller is yeah. for like a like it, a little SUV or a little car. Right. So you've just got a hole there. And so what a lot of people do is they'll put, a, I guess they call it a cover. Yeah. A little, some, some, sometimes it's like a, like a Cardinal for the University of Louisville or it's a sports yeah, team yeah, thing. Exactly. Or, well, this is, it's a Pac-Man on a ghost. Uh-huh. And I, I am just marveling. Yeah. We're. I'm marveling at this print. This print. It's such high quality, isn't it? Freaking. It's amazing. Beautiful. It is beautiful. And, and the thing is, is it's I mean, it kind of makes me want to just throw my tr- my printer in the trash because I don't <laughs> think I could ever. I don't think I could ever. This is gorgeous. It, it is. It, it's gorgeous. And it's printed uh, out of Pet G. So you you could leave it in there in the sun. You could leave it, leave it in there. You could leave it out in the sunlight for extended amounts of time and it will not weaken or fade which so, is great so the, unlike, it's, unlike pla it's a three-piece print the yeah. back piece is which is a square tube that uh-huh. goes in the in the receiver tube it's got little little pinchy things that i don't know how to describe it push tabs yeah push tabs so to lock in the hole where you'd put your um you'd put your pin that holds your draw bar in yep and then you can they flex so you could squeeze it and pop it out and then attached to the face of that is a blue ghost that is oh my god I mean, it's it's the print is gorgeous. I'm going to tell you, it almost looks painted. It does. Yeah, it almost looks painted. Yeah, because it's it's printed in blue. Uh huh. And then attached to the face of that is a pack 
with his mouth open in yellow. Yeah. And then there's two screws from the back that hold it all together. Yeah. And it is. It's very nice. It is phenomenal. Yeah. I asked him where mine was and he said, I didn't get one. So, <laughs> so that's how this stuff I know goes. His, I know his favorite. Is. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact not having been made it. Yeah. But, uh, but it, no, and I, it, I will get a picture of that because is, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. It is. It, it, Whitney, it is so silky smooth. It's silky it, smooth. It, it's unbelievable. So, so here's what, here's what I've got. I've got a $5 bet that that thing makes it into the back of your truck tonight is what i bet well right now the 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 hit the draw bar for my uh for my weight distribution hitch i think is plugged into it so it's not going to make it in the actual like into my truck well go put it in the cab of the the truck truck, so that i don't lose five dollars okay oh no yeah yeah so we're talking uh i gave this so we've talked trailers uh-huh. hitches tire tire maintenance tire maintenance i gave someone soap and they gave me a trailer hitch cover yeah it's which brings me to the to the this whitney okay now you said okay you said this is going to blow my mind so, so you I, look you strike me as somebody with here uh, a man of fine taste that yes, likes exactly a, that likes a quality shower Oh, I do. You there's, do you? There's no doubt about so it. So you need uh-huh. to get into the Tempest right now. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> While really? we're on the topic of soap. S- seriously? Yeah. You need to crawl into the Tempest. Okay. And you got to reach down in there because when this showed up, I was, I was, I'm going to tell you right now. What? When you dropped it, did it, uh, did it go for a no, little no, bit or what? No, no, it's the bottom of the coin bucket. Okay. All right. But okay. I was slightly disappointed in the size. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's a little smaller than I thought. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. I'm going to go it, off it, mic and look this it, up. Okay. It kind of reminded me of like, uh, National Lampoon's European vacation when, when Clark is in the room and he's like holding the brochure for the hotel and he's trying to figure out what angle they took this picture at because the room is small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, I had I had to hunt around for the oh my gosh. That oh yeah. <laughs> it is Spock soap. <laughs> so read it. Oh, it says it's the logical choice. Vulcan mint scented. <laughs> oh my gosh! I thought you'd enjoy that. Oh yeah. Now here's here's what's amazing about this is on I the, give soap to everybody. Oh, apparently. this this is awesome. Yeah. So it's so I'm I'm gonna. Oh, this is awesome. So <laughs> on on the label it says bath time before a muck time. Okay. <laughs> and on one side of the label, uh, you know, the short there, side. There's about four of us that got that joke. Yeah, but it's but it's good. So here, here's another one. On the short, on one of the short sides of the, of the soap bar, on the label, it says human side, and then you flip it over, and then it's you know 180, and it says Vulcan side <laughs> because you know, yeah, yeah, and uh, and it says so. The other side of the long side of, of the soap package says because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. This is true. This is true. Oh, this is awesome, man. So uh, I'm going to take a picture of this, and I promise you, I will never use this, but I will look at it fondly. Is well, what I will do. You know, you you can't be alone in the soap gifting. Oh, okay. You know, it started with the pack soap. Yeah, fair enough. And now you've got soap. Oh, this and I love this soap. So look up to your left and see that the stack of of arcade themed board games up there. I do. Look yeah. on the right side of the. It's like an Easter egg hunt at Brent's house. <laughs> yeah. Slid right there on top of the gorf on the right side of that box on the bottom. Reach up there and you'll see a little. Stand up there. Okay. Go all ahead. right. Okay. Gotcha. I, I was petting on the show dog. <laughs> 
Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have There's to actually a ferret up there and it's waiting to bite. He's <laughs> gonna jump on my face. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to divest myself of my headphones. I'll be right back. Just yeah, just reach up there. I can't put it all in the tempest. This is so funny that it's it's like a it's an all soap episode. <laughs> it's all tires and soap. Like yeah, right there. Oh, yeah. it's this right yeah. here is what it is. Yeah. So that get get back down there on your mic. <laughs> That oh, is this, for that is for your lovely bride. Oh, and she will absolutely love this because it is Jean Luc Picard's "Make It Soap" is what it is, <laughs> and so the bath must be drawn here. <laughs> And it, and it says engaging. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. I mean, oh, I, yeah. When we take a break, I'm, I'm going to have to take a picture of the. No, in fact, I'm going to take them home and surprise her is what I'm going to do. Well, you can take a picture of it and put it on Twitter. Oh, or I'll something. definitely do or that. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, we could put it yeah. up ahead of the episode. Yeah. Like, as a, this is coming. Yeah, exactly. We, we, got, we got soap everywhere. Oh, no, that's awesome, dude. We're. Apparently, where in the heck did you find that? I mean, seriously, where does that even where do come I find from? Half the stuff I give you, um, I, <laughs> you know what it is. I, I see know. something silly, and I'm like, I don't want anything like that sitting around in my house. So I'm gonna give it away. I'm gonna buy, give it to Whitney. I'm gonna buy and give it to Whitney. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, this uh, this will actually get uh, get used very well. So that's uh, that's sweet. You know it. Thank you, sir. Uh, the, well, the last thing I surprised you with the Spider-Man uh, head. Oh I, yeah, you. I I, I kind of looked at that. I'm gonna be honest. I kind of looked at that as a little bit of a jokey gift. Oh, but no. you love that. Oh thing, yeah, right? yeah, yes. And I so uh, it is for the past thirty days. It has been sitting on my desk, <laughs> staring at you in a soulless way. <laughs> A loving way. Okay. And it, while I work, and I pet the top of that Spider-Man head bank every day when I sit down and get ready to start my day at work. Well, not only, Whitney, do you look like someone that likes and would enjoy a nice shower, you look like someone that likes to be organized. So actually, what you need to do is get back up. Oh. And on the other side of that oh stack of games, All right. there's something slit. That's where the, this is where the ferret is. Oh, okay. Is this where the ferret is? On the left side, oh, slid right go. in there. Is yeah, it, I thought you'd... No, right no, here? oh, no, it's next to that. Yeah, oh. It's the, it's... Nope, 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 nope. To the... Right there. That black thing. Oh. The black... Oh, there it is, oh, right there. Oh, yep. this right here. Yes, that's this yours. Yes. Okay, all right. So what have we got here? Ooh, yeah. Get back down the mic. Oh, man. Uh, okay, yeah, now I'm back on the mic now. Oh, man, yeah, this is fantastic because uh, this is uh, this is something that can go straight into my Trapper Keeper, and, uh, and, and, I, and I can use this for work, no doubt about it. It is a, it is a Spider-Man folder, like a Mead notebook paper folder is what it is. So, yeah, so it's got Miles Morales on one side. Yeah, I, exactly. It's, it's, it's fully decorated in and out. Oh, yeah, it, it is, man. This the kids is, today with their folders, that it was... Back in my day, it was just you got a red one, a blue one, a green one. If you were lucky, yeah. If you, know? you were lucky, yeah. If you were lucky, but oh. no. This is uh, this is Miles Morales Spider Man, and I, I'm going to keep important work papers in this baby I mean, right here. There Fantastic, was a lot, Whitney. There was a lot of years in high school and late in, in grade school. <laughs> Pardon me. 
where I used a fold where I used folders that I picked up at the Kentucky State Fair and they were like insurance company advertising. Oh yeah, exactly. Just because that's you know, just because that was there, it, they know, were there I, and they were cheaper than your parents going and buying them. It, but you walk around with Kentucky Farm Bureau yeah, folders is I, what you did. It didn't yeah. bother me at all. Yeah, I didn't yeah, care. It's all good. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, yes, I will put. That, I'm out of surprises. It's, it's all good. Or I, am I? <laughs> I will. I'll put that folder to good use. In fact, I'll even uh, use it on a couple of calls for work and say, you know, Whitney, do you, do you have a, do you have some documentation on that? And they say, yeah, yep. let me get, let me go get the Spider-Man folder. I'll be <laughs> right back. Spider-Man it's folder. in the Spider-Man folder. Yeah. As, as all things important as, as, are. As they should be. Exactly. Yes. All right, Whitney. So now, now <laughs> I can't believe the soap thing. Yeah, it's, that's it's hilarious how, how that just comes around full circle. But Jason, uh, Jason wanted to make sure that that you, that you had that because uh, he thought very highly of the soap. So, um, but, but anyway, as far as updates go for, for me, besides getting soap in a in a trapper keeper folder, <laughs> uh, n- yeah, not not a tremendous amount on my side either. I mean, I, I've been doing uh, a, a little bit of work on on the mystery on my mister setup i mean there's so much oh my gosh there's so much there to dig into um and i I just haven't really had a tremendous amount of of free time you know over the over the past several weeks uh i mean we're getting grace ready to go to college and, and we move her in as of us recording in three weeks and it's it's been all you know it's been all hands on deck just getting you know everything checked off uh, off the list for her for school and everything like that but anyway when i when i did find some time i mean i, I did a little bit of work on on my mister setup and uh this is one thing that you know you open up a one can of worms and then it becomes like <laughs> three or four can of worms oh, i know and um and so my rally x cabaret i i i got into the back of it because I was moving my cabarets around and uh, and I was looking at the power cords on my other cabarets and I was like, you know, I don't really like a couple of those power cords. I'm going to replace those. So I replaced the power cords on, on those machines and I have got, Brenna, I, I don't know if you save these, but I save them. Uh, I've got a whole host of pc power cords oh, okay yes. i can't yeah i've got more than i'll ever use more than i'll ever use no 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 i keep every one i ever find it whether i need it or not and so i've built up quite a collection of those and what i do is when i get games in or when i get a game you know ready to work on and everything and it needs a power cord i'll just lop off the end splice it out and then i use a really nice molded pc power cord as the power cord on my game now okay? usually those things are kind of short like four feet oh man i find them in six eight feet oh, so length. You, okay yeah, yeah. If you so, get a, yes yeah, i yeah. only put long ones on. okay okay right, yeah gotcha. like super long yeah in fact i've had a couple of those yes yeah in fact you can't have a long enough cord for an arcade no. game i mean if it if that cord's eight foot long it's brilliant it's it's, it's doing a great job but anyway um so i replaced a couple power cords got those to the point where i was happy with them and as i was working on the games you know, I, I, I was looking at the harnesses on them, and it, it, again, it started with the with the Rally X and it, it, because it's the newest cabaret that I have. I got into the back of it and I started looking at the wiring harness in it, and it's like, man, this thing is just a total hack job. Really? Yes, and I just wasn't happy with it at all. And and I like, knew that, I I knew that like was there 
like maybe a broken wire too at the connector that was haphazardly soldered on or well, it, tapping into people it, tapping into things. They installed they installed a switcher and as you as you can often visualize or as I'm sure you can visualize mm-hmm. when people install switchers without adapters, they take it upon themselves to cut all kinds of wires. Yeah. And and then it just becomes a spaghetti mess inside the did cabinet. Did they even put con- little like uh do they put connectors on the end of the wires or they just like strip the wires and wrap them around the screw screw terminal on the strip switcher and go. No, on this one it actually has terminals. So I mean it has crimp terminals and it has butt terminals where needed, you know, for AC and stuff like that. So I, they 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 an did. attempt was made. An attempt was made. <laughs> okay. that, that's exactly right. But I still look at it and it it looks like a third grade. It looks like a third grade <laughs> job, you know. And I, I'm sitting there looking at it and it's like, man, I I don't like this at all. And then I went to my other cabarets, popped the backs off of those and i just started comparing and the more i looked at them the 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 more the despair set in you know because it's like (laughs) i don't like any of these and so i've got to determine what i'm going to do from a harness perspective in for a pound yeah in for a penny out for a pound that's exactly right and uh and so anyway, so I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole with that. And I've got to I've got to sort through all of that. I mean, all the games play fine. There's no problem as far as operationally. You know, you put the put the back back on them and you'd probably never. You know, well, there's no way you would ever know. But it, it, anyway, it, it just bothers me. But I, but that those those are future messes that I've got to sort through. But um well, I'm talking about Cabaret, I think I'd be remiss to say, you know, I, I was moving a couple of games around and uh, my, I moved my Satan's Hollow around. And, you know, if any listeners know of a Cabaret Satan's Hollow or a Cabaret Tempest that uh, that they either have and would be willing to sell or know where, where either of those or both may be, please, uh, you know, drop me an email and let me know because I would love, love, love to pick up a Cabaret Satan's Hollow and a Cabaret Tempest, either or. Or both, um, and gladly offer up my full sizes uh, in either trade or just sell outright to get those because, yeah, I mean, I do love the cabarets and I, I just wish I'd gotten into them sooner. But, uh, but anywho, you know, just spend a little time with those. And then one thing, Brent, and I, I appreciate the help on this. You you helped get me connected with uh, with a, a opportunity yep. to upgrade uh, a game, and and I, I picked up a really nice upright Moon Patrol over between recording sessions, and and that's going to allow me to upgrade the one that that I currently have. And I'm going to much like what you were saying with your Carnival, the one that I've got, it's not bad, but it's not as nice as the one that I got, and so I'm just going to offer offer it up for sale so so anyway that's it and uh, as always uh no work on my zookeeper at uh at all so again it stares me in the face it mocks me it laughs me and uh it haunts me and there we are so <laughs> at least it's consistent it, it, oh it's extremely consistent but uh but i am moving stuff around in my in my workroom with the intent on making uh you know making an attempt on that so so anyway that in a nutshell that that's it so not a lot to report honestly yeah, yeah, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, Whitney. I know at least for here, it's been the last, especially the last two weeks, have been bonkers. Yeah, well, and it's been for me as we've been getting Grace ready for school. Man, I haven't been thinking about arcades really. I mean, what everything that I just described here is something that I've done while Grace has been at work, and uh, you know, Jackie's doing something else, and and I've got oh, I've got forty five minutes. Yeah, let me let me tinker with that Rally X and see what's going on with it. You know, that's that's kind of how it sorts itself out. Nothing organized or you know or concerted i guess concentrated at all so 
time wise. So let's tell everybody what we've got coming up in the next segment of the show. Oh, the next, yeah, this segment and the next two shows. It's going to be great. Do you, I mean, do you want to go? You want to go into well, yeah, it? Yeah, sure. Let's just let's. We got to intro it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. So when we were at the Music City Multicon in, uh, I, I guess it was what October, October twenty twenty two. October twenty twenty two. For whatever reason, I, I always think uh, my mind jumps to November, but in October twenty twenty two, uh, you actually hosted the Kitchens. And David Crane, so Gary Kitchen, Dan Kitchen, and David Crane mm-hmm. in a three-panel series discussing, and, and I, I, we can get into the titles, or let's just, actually, let's just jump in. Various things having to do with the Atari 2600 and their history. Yeah. So what we're going to run in this episode of the podcast is panel one, yeah. and it was titled the Atari Activision years. Yes. Yeah. And so what David Corrigan, the, sh- the showrunner uh, and show owner uh, there at the Music City Multicon had asked for was uh, a, a, essentially a, a kind of a tour de force of, of the, the history uh, and we'll call it, you know, past, we'll call it long past, mid past and present history on what uh, Gary Kitchen, his brother Dan, and David Crane uh, had, had either have had worked on or are up to across the course of their careers, and so we decided. Uh, David and I were talking. We decided to split this up in, into three different uh, three different panel segments, and this first one was recorded on a Friday. Uh, the one that will run in episode 115 was recorded on Saturday, and that's going to get into the absolute entertainment years. And then uh, the panel that will run on episode 116 uh, was recorded on Sunday there at the Music City Multicon, and that brought us up to current day uh, with their uh, with their company uh, called Audacity Games. And this was really a watershed moment for me personally. And getting to sit down with uh, with uh, David Crane, Gary, and Dan, and uh, you know, I, I had I had these three guys essentially uninterrupted for uh, it collectively turns into probably about four and a half hours worth of content. I mean, it was it was uh, it was actually it was just unbelievable, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back on it, and I'm almost speechless, quite honestly, because I don't think I—I I mean, I don't see how I ever, how I ever really get to top this, because uh, these guys were childhood heroes of mine, and um, I, I was just very fortunate to be able to sit down and, and, and talk with them and, and go through, uh, you know, go through these, these, uh, you know, these period of years with them, and and you know, make make no bones about it, you know, if you've heard them speak before, there's some there's some of that content that you're going to hear here. Again, uh, it's unavoidable because it's history. But I, I, I tried very hard, very hard to do my homework ahead of time and make sure that we talked about a wide variety of subjects within each history period and not just rehash some of the same uh, you know, presentations that you've seen them do in the past. It's, so it's funny, Whitney, I was going to, I was going to actually say the exact same thing. Cause I mm-hmm. knew that you did that. I know mm-hmm. that we both try to do that whenever we interview anybody, mm-hmm. y- you have to almost acknowledge what's already out there. You have to. Yeah. But I know we both do our homework on the subject, uh, the interviewee or in, yeah, I guess that would be right because we would be the interviewers. Yes, correct. On the interviewee. Yeah. So that we we 
we tread new ground. Yes. So yeah, as as much as we can, and and I do want to say that. You know, we've as the as the show has gone on over the years, I mean, we've weaved in and out of having, uh, you know, interview segments on the show. And a lot of times it's very uh, it's difficult to do because it takes coordination on uh, three people, at least three people's part, Brent's part, my part, and then the person that we're going to interview, because we we like to do it uh, in a certain format, in a certain style. And we have found over time that uh, the the shows that we go to or that we're asked to attend and the panels that we're we're asked to lead, they they become very uh, convenient from an interview segment perspective because we get automatic access to these these, dignitaries, luminaries, what however you want to call them you know in the industry and uh and there's something that 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 i think stand on their own that we're just very very proud of and this is an interview series that i'm that i'm very very proud of so i I, you know thank david for making this possible and we hope that you all enjoy listening to these as much as we, we enjoy bringing them to you so let's all sit back and listen to the first panel session the first session in the three panel series with uh, David Crane, Gary Kitchen, Dan Kitchen, and Dan Kitchen, and we're going to cover the Atari and Activision years. Okay, everybody. Good evening. I'd like to thank you all for making uh, the first uh, the first of three panel discussions here with uh, Mr. Gary Kitchen, Mr. David Crane, and Mr. Dan Kitchen. Uh, this tonight's discussion is called uh, the Atari and the Activision Years, and then tomorrow at four o'clock we're going to have a discussion around uh, Absolute Entertainment and these gentlemen's uh, involvement there. And then on Sunday morning at eleven thirty, we're going to be talking about their work with Audacity Games and bringing new games to the the Atari 2600 platform. So uh, again, this is uh, this is number one of three. It's going to tell a complete story by Sunday. So I uh, hope you all can make it back and, and hear what uh, hear what everybody has to say about uh, the absolute years in, in Audacity Games as well. Uh, real quick, my name is Whitney Roberts. I'm the co-host of the Broken Token uh, Classic Gaming Podcast. And with me here tonight, and gentlemen, would you mind to... Uh, you need no introduction, but still we have to have an introduction. <laughs> Gary Kitchen. David Crane. So, so guys, there, there we go. Excellent, excellent. Right, right up there in the mic. So, so gentlemen, uh, tonight's discussion is is around really the the formation of of your time that led into creating Activision and and your time working with, dealing with, uh, creating games on the Atari twenty six hundred console for Atari itself. Um, and and would you all? My, I guess probably the best way to start this is: Would you all mind to, I, I guess, kind of give the audience and give us uh, just a quick a quick idea as to how. How did you get started creating games for the 2600? What, what led you to Atari to making the games? And, and of course, we'll get into Activision here in just a few minutes. But uh, where did it all start for the three of you? Um, I uh, grew up being, uh, being an artist, drawing, painting. That's really where my passion was all the way um, through high school. And then when I went to college, I, I went for art seemed logical, except I started to wonder about whether or not I was going to be able to pay the mortgage with that, (laughs) but it was what I loved to do. Um, And I ended up getting a job offer at a tiny little engineering company, tiny, like four people. Uh, And and they were doing things with electronics, and I knew nothing about that. 
but they offered me a job as the low man on the totem pole going out and, you know, getting, getting lunch and making sure there was plenty of Coke in the fridge and M&Ms. So, um, they started doing some fun stuff with electronics. I started learning on the job and I changed to night school in college and changed from art to engineering, uh, electrical engineering. Uh, that, that was a, a great discussion with the, um, the college uh, guidance counselor who said, no one does that. You don't go from art to engineering, but what did I know? So I did that, got into engineering, started working at this little company, learned a lot, and um, started first in electronic toys. Uh, did a couple of um, 4-bit microprocessor-based electronic toys right after the time when Mattel came out with Mattel Football, which was everybody who was born in that era knew about Mattel Football was really the first electronic toy. It had little red lines and the ball yeah. went down the field. And uh, After that, I, I did a couple of games, ended up being marketed by Parker Brothers. Uh, Wildfire was a pinball machine. Bank shot was a simulation of billiards. And then I saw what was going on on the West Coast. Atari had started and they had just released this cartridge-based machine. And this company, Activision, had spun out of Atari and started to do really amazing video games. I saw the end was coming that that was going to take away from the uh, electronic toy business. So I went out and I bought an Atari. And back then... You didn't call Atari and say, send me a manual, I want to write games. Everything was top secret, closed system. There were no manuals. There was no way to learn how to do an Atari. So I bought it, ripped it open, reverse engineered it, figured out how it worked, figured out how to write games on it. And I called this guy who had founded Activision, the company I admired so much from the East Coast. And that's how I got into Atari. And then we'll go to Dave. Or maybe go to Dan... Because Dan was with me, and then go to Dave. Because Dave's kind of the centerpiece. Though. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's fair. And Dave, we certain certain after Dan, Dave, we certainly want to hear about how you got started at Atari and then springboarded onto Activision. But yeah, Dan, let's yeah, yeah certainly, I had, certainly uh, East Coast West Coast there, parallel there you story. Go. Yeah, we were East Coast at that point. Me and Dan, I had uh, kind of followed Gary uh, and became a technician for this small company. So when they created circuits or electronic games, they needed to have these prototyped. So I would be the, the guy in the back with the soldering iron and the chips and wired everything up. And eventually through that company, I learned to program uh, four bit microprocessors. And then for Christmas 1980, I received an Apple II computer. And Gary was already playing around with that. And I, I learned that at, at night and taught myself programming. And uh, eventually, um, Gary and I left that small company and started our own company in his basement, writing software for the Apple II computer. Um, and just about that time, Gary had just finished his first Atari game, uh, which was called Space Jockey. And I think I'll let Dave pick it up from here, and then we'll we'll kind of go into how we how we joined Activision. But we'll let Dave go back to the the beginning of Activision. Sure. Well, unlike Gary, um, I was an engineer from the day I was born. Um, I'd take things apart, fix them. Um, I designed a tic-tac-toe playing computer when I was 12 years old. It didn't use a computer, it actually used switches. But um, 
And I was the kid in the neighborhood who would understand how games worked. Uh, if we had a board game that required four players, and I only had two friends over, they'd hand me the box. It was printed on the un underside of the lid of a, box, a game box with the instructions. And they would just basically say, all right, how do we change these instructions so it works for three people instead of four? So I'm basically writing game logic back then. So that was, you know, in my grade school years. But uh, yeah, there was no doubt I was going to become an engineer. My, my dream was to make a, make a product that would be sold on late night television where I'd make a one of them and I'd sell a million of them, you know. Ron Popeil was my idol. He was the guy who made the Vegematic. Yeah. Right, the Ginsu uh, knives. The Ginsu knives, yeah, Ginsu whatever. Knives. It's yeah. Make one. But my mother was an artist, and she insisted that all of her children take watercolor classes and learn how to paint and did art. And so I, I learned all of that from that standpoint. But again, if I did a painting, it took three or four hours to do a painting. And if I wanted to do a second painting, it would take three or four hours again. So no, 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 I want to do this thing once and mass produce it and sell a million of them. And so I actually, in college, I invented another tic-tac-toe playing computer for one. <clears throat> um, there were a lot of power outages back then, so I designed a digital clock that automatically set itself by using communication over the power line. Um, a programmable rhythm se section, you know, those drum machines back then, they weren't programmable. You would just, you know, select the tango or whatever and you'd get that. I made one that was programmable. I did all that kind of stuff. So it was clear that was the direction I was going. I was also a tournament tennis player and um, that came into play because when I moved to Silicon Valley, I, I um, took an apartment in a complex that had tennis courts and Alan Miller, who was um, one of my co-founders at Activision, but working at Atari at the time, uh, he and I played tennis and we hung out. And one night he came up and after we played tennis, he pulled out a, an ad that he had written for Atari to get new game programmers because they had just put out their Atari 2600 and asked me to proofread it because he was gonna put it in the newspaper the next day. And when I read it, I said, sounds like kind of interesting job. I'm not sure I really want to program on a microprocessor for a living. I was working at National Semiconductor doing engineering, which is much better, right? Um, so anyway, but I said, yeah, this is kind of interesting. And that night, I went back to my office in, uh, at National Semiconductor, and on an 8-bit computer that I had written and written a um, word processing program for, I wrote up a resume arranged with Al that I would meet at 10 o'clock the next morning and received an offer by two o'clock that afternoon. So in less than 24 hours, I said, okay, I guess I'm going to be making games at Atari. <laughs> and that was when Atari was still fun. So that got me to Atari. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I, that stuff just doesn't seem to happen like that now. So it's, 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 just, it's just crazy to think about how, how something so pivotal to history happens so quickly like that. So, so David, so your, your time at Atari, can you, can you talk to us a little bit about the games that, that you did there? And, and then what really led to creating of Activision and then what brought, what brought you and, and Dan and Gary together? Yeah, I mean, Atari was a little company very much doing innovative things. We were at the forefront of video games. This was, this was new. Video games just weren't out at, at the time. 
and Nolan Bushnell was very much hands-on. He would come down to the lab and we would talk about game ideas and whatever. But he had just sold the company to Warner Communications and um, he needed money to expand Atari so he got the big corporate uh, parent. And they never understood the creativity of making video games and this became, this became a big issue that has always been a problem in the video game business is there's the creators and then there's the money people and the marketing people and they don't understand each other. Um, so it was a fun yeah, place. Yeah, that hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fun place to work. Um, you'll hear a lot of stories about drug use and naked hot tub parties in the, in the office. No. <laughs> I, I did not experience any of those things. Um, we, I had a group of people I worked with. We were very self-motivated, very technically oriented, and somewhat interestingly, both left and right brain people. Um, to make a video game at that time was very, very technical. I, I, I could astound you with some of the strange things we had to do to make the system do something interesting technically, but it was also very creative and artistic and had to look nice. So you had to have both the technical and the creative skills to do this because at the time, the game team for making a game was one person. And I usually say one man, and until Carol Shaw came along, it was one man, but yeah. we, we brought in Carol, and she did really well. Um, so yeah, it was every day you'd be working with people that are very competent at all of these skills, making a game, um, working on it until we like it. You know, you would, it would be iterative process. I would do something, and i say, that's not fun. So I'd write it again, and I'd write it again, and finally it starts to feel fun. And... Um, you know, for example, I, I, I've got a guy on the screen and I want to move it to the right. So I move the joystick to the right and the guy moves to the left. Well, that's a bug. So you go back and you fix the code. Now you go back and you touch it in again. So over and over and over, just every couple minutes, you write a new section of code, test it, see how it works, and always try to end up with your vision at the end that uh, you've got a fun game that everybody can play. So, so through all of that, in, in that work, would Atari dictate to you what what titles to work on, what games that, that you got to that you got to develop for? Would they take your suggestions, your ideas? Uh, how, how did how did that play out? Yeah, you're asking all kinds of funny questions when it comes to Atari. Um, <laughs> Doesn't a lot of that depend on whether it was Atari pre Warner well, or Atari yeah. post Warner? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's all of my time at Atari. Um, it was all post Warner, but just barely. And but it was before it really started to fall apart. But um, it was truly a strange environment. They had a computer system that emulated or simulated the Atari 2600. Simple as that. You sit at a terminal and you type code and you would upload it into a system that's plugged into the Atari 2600 so you could write a game and see it work on a real TV set. You know, it was just a one-to-one -one thing. And they'd sit you down and say, here's a 30-page manual of how the hardware works inside the Atari 2600. Now go make a game. That was the direction that we got. Wow. From, from absolutes... The day That's I walked not even in, fair. Yeah, from the day I walked in, they said, "See what you can do." I training. Want see, I want to see a game. What training? What training? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that they they did have a list of games that people had thought of and not done. Okay. So they did have this list. If you can't think of anything, here's a list that you know brainstorming results from you know we've talked about. 
And you kind of looked at each other and said, oh, so those are games I'm not going to do. Yeah. Because those are the bad ideas. Those are the bad <laughs> ideas. Somebody else already turned this down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they were trying to help, but they were actually working against themselves in that respect. And so, well, it was, it was a real crucible. I mean, you're thrown into the fire and say, do something. And if you don't, you're a failure. And um, I ended up kind of gravitating with three other guys. And the four of us made most of Atari's most successful games. And went to lunch together and that sort of thing. And so when it really started to hit the fan at Atari, we ended up, the guys sitting around saying, this is terrible, what are we going to do? So out of that, then soon comes the, the idea for, for Activision. And when, when you decide to leave Atari, David, and, and you say, okay, I'm going to now build a, build a life, I'm going to build a career on what I've learned here and then carry it forward, what, what, was, the, what was the pressure like for that? Because it, there are so many uncertainties, so many unknowns. Were you concerned about legal action from Atari? Were you concerned about, uh, were you concerned about you know, retribution from, from others within the industry? I mean, today it seems like we're in such a, um, well, a litigious environment. In, no. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so how did that how did that play out back then? I mean, could you just go and start a company that way? Well, yes and no. Um, the first question that you asked was the risk or how yeah. risky was it? Yeah. Well, we were all young kids living in apartments. None of us had spouses. We did. None of us had mortgages. Um, you know, so we really didn't have that kind of worry. There wasn't any financial worry. Oh, we to be knew young what we again. Could do. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, to give you an idea, um, Atari's marketing department, the year right before we left, when we were thinking about leaving Atari, they brought out this memo. Okay. And the memo was the top 20 selling games in Atari's catalog for the previous year. And what they were really asking us to do is, you see these games that sold millions and these that sold thousands? Do more like these. <laughs> I'm serious. They were just saying, do more games that sell so, millions. So that's the direction. That's the direction yeah. we're getting from Mar just do from more that's marketing good. department. Wow. But it, it gave us a different message. So we looked at this list and of these 20, said, well, wait a minute. Larry did that one and that one and that one. Bob did that one and that one and that one. Al did that one. And I did this one, this one, and this one. We had done 60% of Atari's sales for the previous year, the four of us. Uh, okay. And it was an open secret that Atari had sold $100 million <laughs> worth is. of cartridges. Yeah, yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> $100 <laughs> million that's, dollars that's worth of cartridges. That's the inflection point. <laughs> and the four yeah. of us had done $60 million worth of sales, and we were all making $20,000 a year. That's not right. Yep. That's not so, right. <laughs> so we went to Atari management, and we, we pointed this fact out. And the new CEO at that time, Nolan had been booted out by then. I'd spent, I was at Atari for about two years, and so this is the end of it. And um, the new CEO there said, he, he was from corporate business. He, he worked for Burlington Industries making fabrics. And they decided that's who should run Atari, the creative video game company, right? And he said, no, 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 you didn't make those games. Atari made those games. 
There's all the people in the marketing department doing the boxes and writing the manuals and the guys on the assembly line who have to put them together. Atari made those games, not you guys. This is sort of a Jedi thing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, anyway, so we walked out of that meeting and the senior vice president who knew better, as he was walking us out, he shook our hands and said, it's been nice knowing you guys. Oh, so, <laughs> so, so at that point, he already knew he what knew. was going to happen. He knew the writing was on the wall. Yeah. And so um, we were leaving regardless. And we actually thought about leaving, forming a company, and just consulting back to Atari and letting them publish the games because we would then get a bigger percentage and we would get a royalty, which Atari would not even talk royalty. They absolutely refused to even use the word. Um, but Al Miller was actually the driving force. He said, no, 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 let's just compete with Atari. Let's make our own publishing company. We talked to a lawyer. The lawyer put us on to a business guy who was Jim Levy, who ended up our CEO, founding CEO. Uh, he had been talking to venture capital at Sutter Hill Ventures, and they were ready to write a check. Mm -hmm. So we all came together in just like a two-month period and got funded. We were the first software company funded by a venture capital company. They had always funded companies that made widgets and gadgets and things they could hold in their hands. Right. Um, and um, ended up doing our first four games in the first four months from the day we opened. Okay. So, so after those first four months and those, those first four games, how would, you, how would you determine what the game roster for upcoming titles would look like? And then what, what led to the, the East Coast, I guess, design studio with, with, with Gary and, and with Dan? Because uh, growth is always a target. There's, there's no doubt about it. You have yeah. to grow. But, uh, but can you give us some insight into what the very early days were like? And then, and then, what, then what led to that, that, that desire or that branching out? Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, we had four programmers, and we hired a friend of mine that I had gone to college with, and he was also in Silicon Valley, and so we ended up with five. Okay. And that, was that Steve Cartwright? That was Steve Cartwright. That was Keith, okay, just want to make sure. The, and, yep. uh, Activision games were really good games. All right, we were really good <laughs> at what we did. Everybody loved them. They played really well. Amen to but that. A lot of the reason for that was because we had a synergy as a group. And it was really one man responsible for each game, mm -hmm. but the entire group kibitzed. They would stand, we'd be in, we were in a uh, bullpen with cubicles, everybody could see everybody else's screen, and uh, somebody come by and say, that sucks. They would just flat out tell me that that didn't look good, right? And I'd argue with them and then I'd fix it, right? Um, so the games were the product of a group of people working together. And we learned very quickly that four or five people could do that. You try to put 20 people in the same lab and it wouldn't work at all. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there was a Harvard Business School case study on what we called the design center concept, which is get five or six people, four, four or five or six people who worked together really well, had a good group synergy, put them in an office so that they shared the space and had to kibitz, had to work together, mm -hmm. and we would be able to expand. So now, how do we expand? Well, we need to find these groups that have a group of people who work together well that we can just set up in an office and have them churn out games. That was the design center concept. Okay. It was truly intentional that we were going to make this, this is how we were going to grow Activision. Okay. 
So I, so I take it that <laughs> add that from there, that's Gary. Let's Dan's take let's take it from there and yes. let, let Gary take over the yeah. mic. So after I reverse engineered the Atari, I did this first game, Space Jockey, for the gentleman that we worked. Dan and I worked for this small company, and. Um, we were in a, a similar situation to Dave. When I finished that game, I figured it was going to, he was, the guy would take it and sell it to Atari or to Activision or make a boatload of money for the company. And it kind of disappeared and he went off and started another business called US Games. Didn't tell me about it. I was only the only guy in the business who knew the Atari and started it with someone else and put the game out. And I went to him and said, you know, I should have been involved in that. And, and I make $11,000 a year. And I put you in the Atari business. Maybe I should get a raise. And he said, no, you're not worth more than that. So that was it. It's brutal. Out the door. See you later. Yeah. Dan went with me. And I, pretty soon after that, my phone rang. Because people who knew how to program the Atari, who didn't work at Activision or Atari, numbered one. <laughs> I was the only one who knew the Atari at the time who, because I didn't work at Atari, I didn't work at Activision, and I had reverse engineered it. So I got a call from Coleco, and Coleco said, we just bought the rights to Donkey Kong on the Atari, and we need someone to program it. Sure, I could do that. So I took that project from them, and uh, in the process of doing it, which was really hard to do, you're taking a $3,000 machine a game with unlimited ROM, unlimited RAM and power, and putting it into a $6 cartridge. That's a whole other story we'll get to in the next episode. Sure. Uh, but in the meantime, I started thinking about what we were going to do next. So I picked up the phone and I called Activision's main number, because we really liked the Activision games. And we said, like do games to them. So I called, I got the receptionist, <laughs> I asked for the head of product development, bounced around the switchboard a little bit, finally got to a guy named Tom Lopez. And I said, hi, my name's Gary Kitchen. I, um, I'm in the New York area. I know you guys are California, but um, I program Atari 2600 games. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, the only people who do that are the people at Atari and the people in my office. I said, oh. I said, well, I'm just finishing Donkey Kong for Coleco. And he said, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> I had the right words. So he came out, met with him, and uh, also talked to Atari. And then Atari started courting Dan and I and our team. We had four or five people. Uh, and as did Activision. Both of us, both of them flew us out to California first class when they figured out we knew how to program the Atari. Yeah. By then, I had spread the knowledge to the other guys, and we were all working on Atari games. So we went out, met with these guys, uh, met with Atari's people, and then made a decision to go with Activision. Not necessarily because they were offering us more money. They actually weren't. Um, it was because we respected the games and the games were great and we wanted to do games of that quality so we and they on the other side of the country recognized there's another design center and you know what they're 3,000 miles away and if they screw up royally 
They won't affect our chemistry. But more yeah. important, they're not going to be in the office with us <laughs> screwing up the, the five or six, the group, the group synergy. They yeah. got their own group. So yeah. we opened the it's Eastern perfect. Design Center in Glen Rock, New Jersey in 1982. And we were but the satellite before, office. Before you of did that, you did get an offer from Atari. We did. Yeah. We got a big offer from Atari. They really badly, badly wanted us. After you let them know that you've decided to go to Activision. Yeah, I said, yeah. I said we're not going to do it. We're going to go to Activision. And I talked to um, Steve Mayer. Steve Mayer. Steve Mayer, one of the big guys at Atari. And he said, I'm coming to New York tomorrow. So he flew out, pulled up at my front door of my little teeny tiny house in New Jersey with a limo. Get in. And we drove into New York City and we went to the Time Warner building. And I'm just this kid. You know, I don't know anything from anything. I'm a kid. I just want to work with Activision to make great games. So we go into the Time Warner building, takes me up to the top floor, and we go into this office that's bigger than this room, and Manny Gerard, who was one of the senior VPs at Time Warner, they had divisions, and he ran the video game division. So the guy, the Burlington Coat Factory guy. It wasn't actually Burlington Coat Factory. Burlington, Burlington Industry guy yeah. reported to Manny Gerard, who was the head Warner guy. So he drags me into Manny Gerard's office. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Sits me down and says, Manny goes, what'll it take? Whew. I got a blank check. What'll it take? Dangerous words. I know. Yeah. And I came up with even more dangerous words. <laughs> Being the idiot that I was at the time, probably worked out okay in the end, though. I, I sitting there saying to myself, God, but we just like those Activision guys. We like those games. I know you're offering a lot of money. And I said, look, I'll be honest with, with you, Manny. They had just come out with the Pac-Man cartridge for the Atari. And, you know, all due respect. We know how that landed. It, yeah. wa it wasn't the best yeah. game ever done on the Atari. Yeah. So I looked at Steve Mayer and I looked at Manny and I said, I got to be honest with you, Manny. I can't work for a company to put out a piece of shit like that. Wow. And next that's, thing I knew, I was in strong. New Jersey. <laughs> that's strong. I got whisked out of that building. <laughs> Via a yellow cab. Yeah. 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 Yellow cab. On yeah. A thousand miles an hour back to New Jersey. And we joined Activision. Now, in fairness, Atari threw a lot of money at you, but you got stock with Activision. Yes, we got stock with Activision. <laughs> uh, two weeks after we joined the company, they called us up and said, well, we hope you don't have any plans first week of July. And I said, why? I said, because we're taking the entire company to Hawaii because we had a good year last year. You, your family, first class, Three days in uh, Kapalua Bay, Kapalua Maui. Bay resort. So I got up the phone and said, all right, I didn't make a bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> 250 people we flew. Wow. Two, two, 250 people. Yeah, it was all the employees plus a significant, significant other. So okay. We had about 120 at the time. Yeah. And that's when we met David Crane. And Dave and I have worked together continuously since 1982 when we joined Activision, except for a two-year period where he worked went off and did work with Hasbro on a very interesting project. Other than that, though, we've worked continuously the entire time, and obviously most of the time with Dan as well. Yeah. So, so Dan, just out of curiosity, I mean, how, how, does, how does your story parallel with, with Gary's as far as, as far as rolling into Activision and, and, and that from, or, or from that perspective? Yet, what was the reaction in the office when you learned that Gary turned Atari down? 
Well, we, we, we had gone out to Atari <laughs> together and uh, had a tour of the lab and met some of the guys. And then I remember sitting with one of the executives and, and during the conversation made some comment like, you guys are designers. I can get towel designers to do what you do. And we immediately knew so that it was not a creative atmosphere. Yeah. But Gary failed to tell the story that. So we had left this little company and gone to his basement and started to write Apple games while Gary had already learned the 2600. And we bought Activision games because we loved Activision games. And we always, the new Activision game coming out, we'd always go to the store and get the next one. And Activision, unlike Atari, promoted the designers. So in the back of every manual, there's a picture of David Crane with his autograph, a little spiel about the game. Oh, yes. And so we got to know these guys through their games. Hey, that's a Bob Whitehead game, skiing. Hey, that's a David Crane game, fishing derby. Hey, that's Larry Miller. He did Kaboom. And so we started following these guys and started talking when Gary was reaching out to Activision, started talking about, boy, wouldn't it be great to work with them? So there were primarily four of us in this little company. And I remember at one point, Gary took out one of the manuals or one of the catalogs and it had the four pictures of the four Activision founders and he put little pieces of paper over each one and he drew our faces and said one of these days we're going to work with them and wow. stuck it up on one of the boards that's in powerful. Gary's basement. That's powerful. And that's so that led serendipitously yeah. to us working for Activision and the first time we went out to Activision we were there when these guys were just coming back from lunch but we were sitting out in the parking lot and we were like we were like fan, fanboys. Oh, my God, there's David Crane. Oh, this, that's Bob Whitehead. I recognize yeah. him from the picture. Oh, my God. Dan, I think you should tell your story, though, about the interview yeah. in Activision's office. So <laughs> we, we were fanboys. We went in. We met these guys. They were superstars to us. And so during the interview process in Activision, Al Miller had just created a game called Ice Hockey. Well, I had gotten pretty proficient at Ice Hockey. And Ice Hockey was... Only a two-player game, head-to-head. -head. Only a two-player game. And Gary, you can tell the story from here. No, you tell it. Uh, during the interview, <laughs> um, Gary had mentioned, while we were sitting in the conference room with Atari on the table with a TV, Gary said to, to Al Miller, he said, you know, Dan plays ice hockey. He's pretty good at it. And I think, uh, I think Al slid over an Atari joystick and said, oh. why don't we try? Oh, All right. Yeah. I see where, I see, I see you see where this is going. <laughs> and I said, now, between the two of us, Dan is the better game player. I so said, Dan is tremendous at ice hockey. And Al's like... <laughs> so right, Al puts it in and we're all sitting in the conference room and I start playing Al and I, I had this one move where I could go behind the net and kind of drop the puck in. And I did that and Al looked at me and said, how'd you do that? And so I, I kind of showed him what I did. I ended up beating him at ice hockey at his own game in the conference room during and the interview. Were hired. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's hired. <laughs> that was it. He beat the designer in his own game. Yeah. You're hired. As an aside, when you make a game, you play test it as you're developing. And sometimes the guys in the lab would come over and try it out, but you were the one who spent most of the time. So there is a period in the life of that game where it's finished and the game designer is the world record holder. Right? Technically, yeah. that's true. Technically, yes, that's true. But technically, it's true. A week after it released, there's a million kids who have better scores than we could ever create. <laughs> you know, we learned that very quickly. 
that there's yeah. other ways to play the game. Billy Mitchell's one of those kids who would go out there <laughs> and make our games all, you know, right. bl blow away our scores, you know. So as Gary mentioned, we, we opened the Eastern Design Center and we were just tickled pink to be working with these guys. And, uh, and uh, Gary, you can pick up from here, from, from those where we started days, from there. Those were the days, you know. Uh, where am I picking up from? From the design center? I think you one of your first games and how we how we worked closely with Dave Crane. Yeah. And so so I started working on a game. A lot of pressure. Okay, we made this deal with us and we're paying you this money to make a game. And I had just come off Donkey Kong. So I was in the mood to make another little man game. That's what I I called them little man games. <laughs> So I had a little guy running around and, and a big driving force on what concept you came up with on the Atari 2600. People don't know this, but there's, there's a process to the, the creative process. And what it is, is you only come up with a game where if you can put something on the screen that's recognizable. Like I would have never done adventure because the dragon looked like a duck. I wouldn't have done it. I would have said, well, I can't make a dragon that looks good. I'm not doing it. So I tried a bunch of little men out, and I had to have a little man that you would look at and go, oh, I know what that is. And we would actually test. I'd call Dave over or Dan over and say, do you know what this is? And they go, uh, I, I don't know. Is, is that a, a photographic uh, camera? Nope, it's not. If you have to explain it, it's not. <laughs> if you not. have to explain it, it's not. So yeah. the one that I finally came up is I put a bowler cap on a guy and I said, oh, it's a Keystone cop. Now that's a guy that he's carrying a billy club. He's got that old Keystone cop hat on. And that's where I decided to do Keystone capers. And when I first did it, it was a vertical game. He was running up the outside of the building and a thief was, had stolen stuff in the building, and he was throwing items down on the cop that he had stolen. And Dave came out, and Dave at that point had just finished Pitfall, but hasn't chipped yet. And he showed us Pitfall, and we were obviously ooing and eyeing. Mm -hmm. And he, he and I brainstormed, and he said, you could try screen-to-screen -screen vertical, I mean, horizontal on, pit, on uh, Keystone Capers rather than vertical, maybe it would work better. So I switched it to screen-to-screen, -screen and Keystone Capers was born rather than the vertical that I had. And the other thing about making a game is I would make a game on an Atari if I had some hook of something that looked really good, and the hook was I made an escalator. I thought it would be really cool to make an escalator where the stairs moved perfectly smooth and if the character jumped, he always landed on the step perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like there was no pop. He's, he's like, on this, it's perfect. The physics are perfect. And I did that. Once I did that, so now I gotta make a game with an escalator. And now so, it has to be in an apartment. An apartment and I, so, store so it had to be in a multi-level store. <laughs> David said, let's go horizontal. So everything added up and that was Keystone Capers. So, so how did so through through that time you're developing Keystone Capers, Dan? You're you're working with your brother on the East Coast, David. You and and four other star developers for Activision are out on the West Coast. How did you all share code? How did you all develop? How, how did you create the Activision look and feel that we all know of when you were on opposite sides of the of the country? Because one thing that, and I'll say this, I'm not sure about the rest of the audience, but Dan, to your point, I was a fanboy as well. And 
every game that I ever bought for the Atari 2600, I judged by Activision games. They were always the first that I would buy. I would always read the back of the box. Uh, Dave, I remember seeing your face on Pitfall, your face on your other games, uh, Gary, your face on Keystone Capers. I mean, it, Activision was more than a, a game publisher. It was a company that said quality and the look and the feel, the art direction. It was, it was more than, it was more than the sum of its parts. And actually, and, actually that brings up a story about that exact thing. Okay, so I, I would love to know, and, and I think it's really interesting to hear, how you all kept the zeitgeist together and, and then how you developed that branding. Well, when Dan and I, before Activision, before we knew Activision, I was reverse engineering the... Um, Atari, I don't think we had ever seen an Activision game, but I knew that the Atari was going to be big. That's why I was reverse engineering it. And I had heard this company in the West Coast had started. So I go into a store, and there's an Activision game. And first of all, I was just stunned that someone would have the nerve to put a game out that wasn't out by Atari. It's like, who? Atari was a big name. Who oh, would do that? It was, it, was, it was huge. Who would do that? Yeah. So I called Dan up when I got home because I bought it. It was skiing. I bought it and I said, Dan, and I, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I said, this company put out games for the Atari and they're not Atari. I can't wait to see what a piece of junk this thing is. I mean, we, and Dan hops in his car, runs over. We're ready to just throw tomatoes at the screen. And we flip it on. Yeah, you know, that's not bad. <laughs> you know, we're looking at yeah. going, the skier looks like a skier. Yeah. There's perspective. Yeah, but but the, but the logo at the bottom yes, and the, the rainbow. Logo at the bo it, and I mean, like, it was just so impressive. These guys aren't too bad. And we yeah. started playing it. We got addicted to skiing. So it was, it really was, went from being an upstart to instantly. It was These instant. Guys are it was setting the bar. It was instant credibility. Instant credibility. Yeah, and once you work for a company that's setting the bar, you're not going to come in lower than that bar, and that's why that was the main reason why we joined them. Because I knew if I went to Atari, I could do something in half the time, and it would just be good enough, and I'd make a lot of money. But that's not the way you enter an artistic career like that you want to do the best it's Gary, certainly not the way you them. make a legacy why don't you yeah. tell them about the the donkey kong story when yeah the, the donkey kong story when i was doing donkey kong i was halfway through maybe and the biggest problem with donkey kong and the atari is that the screen has slanted ramps that the that oh, the, the, the girders rolled yeah the girders the girders are slanted well the atari can't do that the Atari can only do one of two things. It can either have mirrored image on left and right of the screen, and think about it, you can't have slanted ramps with a mirrored image, they'd be like this, right? Or it does a reverse on one screen or the other, and you couldn't do that either. So there was no way to do unique graphics on the left side of the screen and unique graphics on the right side of the screen. There was so, no way to do it with the hardware as Atari intended the hardware to be used. Right. You, if you follow the rules, you couldn't do it. So I, when Tom Lopez from Atari came down, nobody from Coleco in the audience is there. 
I, I showed the game to Tom Lopez. If Clico knew that, they would have killed me. But that's beside <laughs> the point. I, I looked the other way when he looked at the screen. So I said, I'm going to put this up. I'll show it to you. And I had, the game was beautiful. Ball, you know, barrel rolled down, rain jumped over it, sound effect, the whole ball of wax. But everything was flat because that's the Atari. And I explained to him. I said, you can't do slanted. And I explained why. And we had a great talk. He said, I got to go catch a plane. He's walking out of the door of my house. Right before the door closed, he looks back. He goes, by the way, if you worked at Activision, you'd figure out how to make those ramps be slanted like the arcade game. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So four weeks later, they were slanted. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's right. We would have done that. I would have had, so I said, well, hell all right, water, I got to figure it out. Yeah. So I rewrote half my code and made the ramps slanted, which, which no one in the normal world understood at all was important or hard. But to people who programmed the Atari, it was, how'd you do that? But it was important that I did it to make it look like the arcade game. We're talking about a period of time where a couple of dozen people in the world knew how to do this stuff. And it was unbelievably complicated. Um, people are starting to get it now, and you see homebrew games coming out where people are starting to figure out how to do the stuff. But we still did tricks back then that are not being done today. And if you want to know how hard the ramps are on Donkey Kong, there's a homebrew game of Donkey Kong now out that has all four levels. I couldn't do all four levels. I was in a 4K ROM. Yeah. couldn't do all four levels. And this guy did all four levels, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful job. He used eight times the memory I had, and he probably yeah. did it ten times the time I had. And God bless the guy. And everybody says to me, did you see that guy did it four level? His ramps aren't slanted. So he had all the time in the world. He had all the ROM in the world. And he just did this like three, four, five years ago. And everybody loves it. And it's flat ramps. So that's how hard slanted ramps wow. are. But Even he didn't do it. Let's okay. not forget the other. Pat you on the back. <laughs> the, other, the other variable is that I think Gary had about three and a half to four months to do this before yes, three months. Christmas of 1982. So, you know, not only is this stuff hard, but we had real deadlines back then. And inevitably, when we would do a game, we would fit it in a 4K cartridge. Inevitably, when you were done with the game, it was 4.5K, maybe a little more, a little less. And then you had to take time to cut bytes so it could fit into the ROM. Because as David would tell you, the ROM was expensive back then. So you didn't think of adding ROM because that just took money off the, off the top end and you'd, you'd touch your bottom line. But one you have, thing... You have no idea how difficult what he's talking about is. You're rewriting the code five, ten times to right. save one To bite save one little bite <laughs> to, save to make one it fit. Bite. To save yeah. one bite. But, you know, we learned by putting on the skiing game initially, wow. that the Activision games just looked better. And, and, and felt better. And played. felt yeah. better. And we learned from, through working with Dave and his team that, you know, there were sets of colors that they chose that worked really well on the screen. We never had flicker in our games like Pac-Man, which had all of the ghosts flicker on and off at different Every time intervals. One of None of our games flickered. We we learned tricks through Dave. You were talking about sharing code. Yes. I remember Dave put in the Activision rainbow on the bottom display, and then we he told us what code to use. And, and so we would share code like that and learn new tricks, and the guys on the West Coast would inevitably 
give us new techniques, and I think sometimes well, we would. I have those. something to remember differently <laughs> about sharing code. Was I remember joining the company and we got a PDP 11, which is a big mini computer at that point because that's yeah. what they had on the West Coast. So we were all using the same computer system, a networked PDP 11 to six or seven terminals. And I remember, this is what I remember, I remember that there was kind of an intellectual wall between our office and their office because those guys were so established and so important to the company. And, you know, from our standpoint, we felt much less important than them and that they were treated like gods in the organization. And I don't remember actually ever getting the code to their games. I don't remember. No, no actually, you're right. It was Not like the if code. somebody actually sent code of of skiing over, I would have had a heart attack. No, but I think Dave did share the rainbow code. Well, oh, he no, did because he had to put that in. Lots of, that had to go into the program. bottom of our games. I, I know you had the pitfall source code, but anyway, <laughs> but no, no, but on eBay, back up, back up a little bit to make this code work in the game, a finished game has been rewritten so many times to be so specific to a specific type of game or whatever. The code was not reusable, really, in any way. No. Maybe, yes, the Activision now logo at the bottom. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, so not specific. at all. Oh, my goodness. So okay. specific. So, so there, there, were no, there were no shared blocks. There were well, no there libraries. Were. Oh, there were. Well, okay. think, think about horizontal strips. Uh-huh. There's a horizontal strip at the top that has six digits to score. Dave created the six digits score kernel. Every video game company in the history of man since them has used it. You talk about sharing code. I was walking through a, a, a mall in Sunnyvale and I ran into the Magic guys. And, you know, we were still friends, although it's, you know. Different company. All supposed better. to be really all secret and everything yeah. like that. And they came over and he said, God, that six digit score kernel. We took it out of Dragster, and we still don't know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you think about a horizontal line, you got the score kernel, yeah. you got the Activision logo. Those little pieces could uh -huh. be shared, but anything in the main part of the game screen, yeah, not a chance. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, okay, the the hex code sixty six zero in hex um, is the opcode for a return from subroutine in the sixty five hundred two microprocessor. Okay, one of Bob Whitehead's tricks was he was he had a subroutine in code and it ended with the RTS. All subroutines return with a return from subroutine opcode, right? He noticed that he had a table that started with 60 hex. So he put the two together and, uh, and commented one of them out. And the routine fell through and it used the 60 in the table, the data table, as its return from subroutine and if he ever moved that code, the code would crash. And, and anybody who's a PhD in computer science would have fallen over and died knowing that. Would have said, you people are idiots. What if you want to change that 60 someday? The code's going to crash. But that's the stuff you had to do to fit in 2K. So you talk about kernels, and we're talking about a machine, 2600, that was never... If, as I understand it and know my history, was never meant to run anything other than Pong in combat. That's right. So, yeah. so how, and I'm just, I'm going to ask because I, I just want to know, how do you get Pitfall and Keystone Capers and Crackpots out of something that was only supposed to run combat in Pong? Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, the interesting thing was silicon is expensive. As ROMs are expensive, silicon is expensive. And when they were making the Atari 2600, they were making the custom video chip. And it had all this capability. 
and it was too expensive. It was more than 200 mils on a side die size, which ran it up to where it was, you know, 50% more expensive on the die or whatever. And so they went through a value engineering step and they said, now wait a minute, the, the video chip is in every console that's already sitting on the shelf in grandma's house. We can't change that once we sell it. But every time you plug in a new ROM, that changes. So they went through an engineering step where they said, what can we remove from the silicon that the task can be done by the code? And they removed a whole bunch of stuff. They removed how to position objects on the screen. The code has to do that now because the, the video chip can't. Uh, all sorts of things. So what that gave them is, you know, serendipitous. Now, every time you change the ROM, you change, basically change the silicon because it's doing half of the job of the silicon chip. And that's how, that's why you have 6,000 different Atari 2600 games or whatever, you know, over the life of its 10-year its life because the chip was not limited uh, to, you know, anyway, features were taken out of the chip so that they would be replaceable. So even before I left Atari, I was doing things on the screen and I had the chip designer of the TIA chip standing behind me once. I, I kind of felt somebody behind me. I turned around. He was just shaking his head. And I said, what's up, Jay? And he said, I didn't know my chip could do that. Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that, blow, that blows my mind because it, it's, it's, so, it's so full of happy accidents, as yes. Bob Ross would See, say. Here's an example. Think about, like, Super Mario Brothers on the NES. If, if you have Mario, yeah. he's, like, 20 lines tall, and he's drawing with a bunch of pixels, what you would do in the NES is you'd say, all right, that's sprite number one, and you tell the NES video chip where Mario's bits are, and it'll take care of grabbing a bit and putting it on the screen, next line. Grab a bit, put it on the screen, next line. Grab a bite, put it on the screen. So, so much more programmer-friendly. We draw it. Yeah. Well, they said, oh, fetching those graphics and putting them on every line sequentially that's too hard for the chip. Let the software do it. So on every line of the screen, we had to reload every graphic for every character, grab it, and put it on the screen. No computer in the world has ever done that. And everybody has a bitmap now. And a bitmap is the entire screen. It points to an area of memory. You change the memory, the image on the screen changes. On the Atari, it had a bitmap. It was one line. The entire single... Scan line the was scan, the, the scan line. The scan so you line. had to yeah. reload the bitmap every time. That took so many cycles of a one megahertz sixty five hundred two processor. On that one line, you only had eighteen pixels you could change. You could only change eighteen pixels total. <laughs> but the upside of that, <laughs> Good gosh. is where is Mario on the NES? If I said, "There's Mario's twenty lines of them. Go ahead and put them up," that's what it did. I didn't have the ability to say, "Hey, you know what I'm going to do." I'm going to shear Mario and shift them over on every line or make them be double or triple size on every line. I didn't have that line-by-line -line control on the NES. He is what he is, right, because it's hardware. But on the NES, you could take anything on any line and say, hey, now I'm going to make them three times the size. On the 2600. On the 2600, I mean. Yeah. Or I'm going to make three copies of them on this line. And then the next line is only going to be one copy. And by being able to do all those different crazy things, you could paint a world one line at a time 
any way you want it. Yeah, yeah. and in, in, as you mentioned, how do you get combat to turn into Keystone Capers? Yes. Well, as David said, as they removed from the silicon the ability to position the objects, they left it to the programmer. So in software, we have to position, you know, the Mario once, or in Gary's case, the Keystone Cop once. But as the TV screen is painted, as it goes down the screen, we can then say, hey, I want to reuse that guy and reposition him down here. And so in software, we can have that guy up here, which is player zero, be a cop. Down here, I can have it be a ball. Down here, I can have it be a little airplane. And so by taking things out of the chip and putting it into the control of the software cartridge, they actually made it, made it, made the ability for us to make games other than Tank and Pong. So David and his team learned, hey, I can reposition these things and change the graphics as the TV screen is painted going down, and I can change the background colors every line as it goes down. And thus, they created in their games the beautiful Activision sunsets, and they could have multiple objects as the screen is painted down. Now, now that all sounds like Nirvana, doesn't it? Well, the reality is, excuse my language, it was a bitch to do. It was a bitch. It still so, is. <laughs> yes, you had all yeah. this power. Yeah. But good Lord, to figure it out and use it was like, you know. You counted every machine cycle down to the unit cycle, the single clock phase of the computer. And you had to know that I have to do this on clock phase 27 out of 72. And, and if you missed by one and you had 73 cycles, instead of 72, you could turn the screen on and it would just roll. <laughs> you yeah. lost the entire right. so, screen. So what Gary had to do when he had, you know, you had these 76 cycles across the screen from, from the beginning of the scan line. Gary had to count the machine cycles and knew when the raster in the back of the TV gun blew the burst of energy onto the phosphor screen, Gary knew I had to change every line of that tilt, and he had to know exactly where he was on the TV screen by counting the machine cycles <laughs> that the processor was doing. How, now, who would ever choose to do this for a living? Yeah, and like it. And the question is, of course, there's no integrated development environments back then, so how did you guys do this? Graph paper? I mean, pen and paper? Yes, it, it, yes we Dan did Dan actually paper. made an incredible... Um, discovery. Uh, discovery just a month ago. He was clearing out an old offsite and he found my old notebook from when I did this. And there's pages and pages of hand drawing on graph paper of all the Mario frames of Donkey Kong yep. and all the pieces oh, of paper. It, an entire how Gary did the, the tilting. The slanted Colored squares on graph paper. Little pencil squares on graph paper That's is how we did, did all our art. And, and you became really good at looking at eight squares that were some were colored and some weren't and instantly translating it in your head to hexadecimal number. Because you had to then type it in. Yeah. You, so I'd look at this graph paper and go C4, A5, A5, C4, 22, <laughs> 2A, well, and that's, I mean, that's what you did. Right, so instead of art, the graphics for every scan line are simply code numbers. Yeah. So we had to make the Mario by making code numbers turn into those little bits, and that's how you created the, the Keystone Caper or the Mario. But it was Marium. so fun to do. But it was so fun, and that's like why we puzzle. still do it today, yeah. actually. If nothing else, it was rewarding when it finally came together. <laughs> yeah, I'm And even sure. today... Which we'll talk about on, on Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. when we did a game we just finished, um, Circus Convoy. I mean, I, I would spend six, seven, eight, nine hours doing one object. 
And then I would send it to Dave and call him up and go, what do you think? He goes, it's, it's all right. I mean, I'm not sure it's a snake. And, and then I go back and I massage it. And even, but, but you love every minute of it because yeah. you know that it's so damn hard to do. You know, well, but it's fun. I will say this. The, the name that you all created for yourselves in Activision, it stands on its own 40 years later. Oh, we it, appreciate it, that. it really does. And for folks like myself, and I'm sure for everybody here in the audience, you're here for a reason. It's probably because you love the Activision games. You love the Atari 2600. What you all have gifted to us collectively can't be matched. It, it really cannot be matched. And we thank you for that. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about Absolute and especially about Audacity as well because that's the that's the the reinvigoration of Activision of old at least at least in my mind. Okay, that, that's that's how I see it. So I get to be a kid again is what I get to be, and that's awesome. And it, it really is thanks thanks to you all. I will say this: this has been the fastest hour that I've that I've had the pleasure of sitting through in most recent memory. And I know that we're already running a bit over, but I do want, I mean, you all have invested your time as well. Um, do you all have any questions that you'd like to ask either Gary or David or Dan? Because I, I know, I know, yeah, <laughs> I know we're a bit over, but I don't want, I don't want anybody to lose this opportunity. That guy in the back, have you ever played video games before? <laughs> we do have a ringer in the back. I'm going to tell everybody. Oh, that's, that's yeah. Shilly Mitchell. Well, I, mean, I know a little bit of the history, you guys, and I won't expound on it here another year. I mean, another hour. But to turn into a humorous point from some of what you told me, I wanted you to expand on your experience. Um, Dan, you told me that you guys were on the East Coast, okay, in the late 70s, the early 80s, back and forth communications. You're basically flirting with the idea of going to different companies and they're very interested in what you're doing because your work's incredible. And you told me at lunch how literally panic, for lack of a better term, came over you because suddenly it was, I don't know what company, but this guy's coming to see us. He's the big boss. He wants to see our offices. He wants to see our operation, our laboratory, everything. Yeah. What you were bringing him to was a desk in a cold basement with one light that you guys work on. Bill is talking about, yeah, when we, were, when we were in Gary's basement and Gary had that call with Tom Lopez. Yes, he said, I want to come out and see your facilities. And I looked and said, do you want to see our bathroom? I mean, <laughs> we, were, talking about? we were in a cold basement, you know, not even a finished basement. An unfinished basement. And, uh, and the next week or... Tom Lopez and Jim Levy, you know, who work and head up a $250 million company, come to this little house in New Jersey, and they come downstairs into the cold basement with the desk and all the electronics and had a great time. And in the middle of the meeting, we're sitting at the desk, and there's a knock on the door, and I go upstairs and come down and say, Gary, um, it's PSE&G. They need to read the meter. The water meter. The water the meter water was behind the, the desk. Behind all the 2,600 equipment. So Tom Lopez, oh. president of a $250 million company, uh, our vice president, and Jim Levy helped us move the big wooden desk so that PSE&G could read the meter. And oh, no, then we classic. could continue the negotiations of us joining. I activation. forgot that story. That's a good story. <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you. Can you tell me a story that never gets forgotten? That's, that's a good story. Thank you for bringing that. So, let me pick on Dave for a minute. You told me, you said, 
testing, 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 writing code, testing, writing code, it was over and over. I mean, it would be a dozen or even two dozen times. You said you would show a game at a show, and really you're showing the game, but you're still in the testing mode. There were times where you showed the game at a show, and you still had to go back and write the code. And and yeah, sure. I know what game he's yeah. talking about. Yeah. I think I that, know that, as well. That will come up in the absolute story yeah, that, because it's a boyness blob. Yeah, boyness blob. But, but then what happened was, even to the point, I said, tell me your worst case scenario. You had a game that was out on the market. Oh, yes. Games back. That's a good story. Yeah. Uh, what game was that? That was Decathlon. Oh, yes. Decathlon. Yes. All right, I'll tell that story. That's a good um, story. But the games at the show, although they were great, they were never 100% the final piece that the public got. Well, sometimes you tried. It, it depended on, on what the release date was. You know, we had this horrible release schedule. We had to release, um, there was 10 weeks of manufacturing, and the games had to be on the, sh the stores by Thanksgiving when people started doing their Christmas sales. So we were finishing games in the middle of June and couldn't go beyond that because it had to turn into a ROM. These days, you rewrite the code and you download an, a patch tomorrow. You know, we, we had literally half a year that we had to finish. So they really, CES in June, they were very close to being done, but occasionally that would happen. The story they're talking about is um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation had a, 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 young, a young man who was, had a terminal illness, and they asked him what his wish was, and his wish was, I want to visit Activision. Oh, I want wow. to go into the lab and get to see secret stuff that nobody ever has seen yet. Wow. Right? And uh, so he came, and they had the big film crew or whatever. And, that's that's um, pretty powerful. And yeah. so for him, we said, you're going to be the first person outside of Activision to play the Activision Decathlon, which was just getting ready to be released. And um, showed him how to play it, and he was playing the pole vault at the time. And um, anyways, cameras and lights, and he's, they're asking questions, and he's playing a game, and he's running down and about to plant his pole for the pole vault. And one of the women asks him a question. He looks up. And so he presses the joystick button, knows he has to do that to plant the thing. And while she's asking him a question, he keeps pushing the button. Like he's still running. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there watching with a camera on my face as well as the guy with each press of the button goes higher and higher and higher and higher and eventually off the screen. Off the screen. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I That's not that supposed code. to happen. I released that code the day before. So we continued our little discussion and then let's take a break. I said, yeah, let's take a break. <laughs> I, I went, ran over to manufacturing and I said, stop the presses. Okay, I have to, I have a bug I have to fix. And wow. so, yeah, there, there was a, a camera on me while that was happening. And I don't know what my face looked like, but I know what my stomach that looked like. That is hysterical. You know? and, wow. and back then, if you didn't find a bug, but it came out in the finished game, it was immediately called a feature. Yes. <laughs> it was. Yes. We couldn't change the ROM. Yeah. 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 Well, I, see, I think you had a question, didn't you, sir? Yeah, yeah. You never really got to How did you exchange data? FedEx wasn't yeah. really around. Yeah, yeah. But there, there was no internet. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two stories. I can get right. the FedEx, FedEx best than around. anyone on the East Coast. If you, if you had to get something to a client, this was before FedEx. You know, Fred Smith was ridiculed when he put that in as a, 
idea in Harvard to do this overnight service. They said, oh, you, you got to see on the project because they said, that's ridiculous. Nobody wants it. We had cases, especially pre-video game. I think we were doing something for Parker Brothers for one of the toys. We needed to get them something tomorrow. You know how you did that? You got you package it up. You got in your car. You drove to the airport. Yep. You put it in luggage. Delta Dash. And you, and you called Delta Dash was one of the reasons. And you literally put it in luggage. Called them up. Gave them the claim ticket. They went. When the plane came in, they went to to oh, baggage wow. and they got the package. Yeah. That's what you did for FedEx. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was they, cargo. It was sub a price of a plane ticket, but still a few hundred dollars. The other thing we did was the game that we were talking about with the 10 weeks have to make Christmas. The game had to be at Nintendo in Seattle, Washington, actually Redmond, on May 30th. Now, that was, I guess, Memorial Day, right? Or within a day of Memorial Day. But anyway, it had to be there May 30th. It's there June 1st. We don't manufacture for Christmas. Sorry. Literally, if, you, if you're one day late, so you May can't 27th, get the game. May 28th, we've still got bugs. Right? And there's no FedEx. So what we did was we took a guy, an engineer, and we packed up an entire NES development system and a PC. And an EEPROM program. And an EEPROM programmer and blank EEPROMs. And we flew him to Redmond, Washington, and he set up a lab across the street from Nintendo. At 11 in the morning on May 30th, we... Send him the code over a modem. Yeah. What was it? Twenty four hundred baud. Yeah, twenty four hundred baud modem. Twelve hundred at that. Twelve hundred baud modem. One byte at a time, and he sat there for hours receiving this. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. He now he has the code. He burns ROMs, puts them into a cartridge, walks into Nintendo at one minute to five, and says, "I have a delivery for you. Here's a game that has to be Christmas." <laughs> and we actually did that on the day to get that there, or else we wouldn't have made it. However. In other cases, when FedEx did exist, we knew exactly where to go to FedEx. We knew the exact time at 9 p.m. We had to get the package there. And we would sometimes be at our office, which was 15 minutes away, and leave at 10 to 9 and still get there. How we did it, I do not know. <laughs> we, we knew where every FedEx when depot was. When it absolutely was. positively had to we be there tomorrow, work there. we got it there somehow. You could, you could drive around to the back and, drop and it go off. in through where they loaded the and trucks. And then you learned, hey, if I up. drove to the airport before the FedEx plane leaves, I can jump there and get it to them because I have another half hour. And on well, many of our games, industry. we have to do that. Yeah. What yeah. an industry. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, so... Obviously, Activision has a reputation for being better games, like uh, collectively percentage-wise versus everything else that was coming out on Atari at the time. But how do you think you guys define fun in a way that, like, you knew it was good before anyone in the public ever got to touch it? Well, you know, if you could define what fun is, you could make a million dollars. I mean, it, we don't know until you play it. But we had this group synergy, and so we would literally, there would be people playing it. As it got near the end, everybody was playing it. We'd take time away from our own games, and we'd play it. And, you know, this sucks. I'm sorry, it's not going to go out this way. And we had, you know, 150 collective years of gameplay experience in that lab, and everybody had to like it before it would go out. So we were our own target market. We, if we liked the game, it was going to, millions of people were going to like it. 
who just happened to have this. And that's really the only way you could do it, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the fascinating things about that is something I've always said. They say, what's it like testing your own game? And it, for me, I came to the conclusion that I could tell when a game was actually going to be good and go out. I would, because think about how you make a game. You make a game, put a guy on the screen, right code to make him go left and right. Stop for a second, run the game. Yep, he goes left and right. Move on to the next task. Put a background up. Yep, the background's up. So you go through all these tasks and you test. Make a test. Make another test. Write some code. Make another test. Well, there's some point in time where you're beyond the mundane bricks that make the environment and you're getting down to interactivity. And I would change something and test. Okay, that worked. Change something, that worked. Change something, that worked. At some magic moment, you would change something and you would test beyond the point of did that work? Like you would actually start to test and play a little bit. Well, we did. And when you found yourself <laughs> testing longer than you had to, you knew that you yeah. had found the spark of genius. You found something that I'm playing because I want to play, not because I'm checking to see if that piece of code worked. And that's where you knew you had it. Yeah, if you reach that point, don't put the game out. At Activision, we would walk over, and if I played it and said, I want to try that again. And yeah, I yeah keep, that was the moment. And yeah. we learned as being programmers, you know, you could take two games and give them to a player, and they'd play them, and they would say, I like that one better than that one, but I don't know why. And we learned as coders, it was the little details we put in. So when the guy was running and you went back the other way, maybe he slid a little bit yes. and he, before he just instantly changed directions. Just a little bit and of we physics put in those goes a long details way. of simulating bit. physics, and it made the guy feel better. He ran smoother. Yeah. And so the, all those satisfying. things in every element yep. Yep. help make the intangible fun get into the How often would you abandon something like either entirely though because like if you get so far into it you're like i know this can work but it doesn't work yet yeah i abandoned i abandoned several games um i had uh, a um off-road dirt bike game and the problem was the atari i used all the capability of the atari just to make the dirt bike and i couldn't find any way to do anything that was challenging with it and just drive it around for a while yeah. a hell of a good demo though yeah. <laughs> independent that was, suspension that was, front man, and back oh wow it was, beautiful. Yeah. it was just yeah. no fun what a game office people or did sometimes your family of the office people interact and going further did some of the people in the office have kids because that would be the indication I mean, that was later. That wasn't in the Atari days. Yeah. Later, as you started to get the more complex games, I would bring them home. And I, people, a lot of people don't know this, but I have triplets. So when my triplets were young, two boys and a girl, they seven, eight, nine, ten years old, or even high school, I would bring stuff home and, you know, let them go hog wild on it and find out. Mm -hmm. One of the amazing things is as much as people in the industry have an ego, you know, oh, I'm the best, I, I know everything, I know how great a game is. You can't let the ego get in the way when you give it to somebody to play and they come back and go, I hate this freaking game. And, you, and you're like, no, no, I've played that game a million times and it's fun as hell. And they go, no, I hate the game. And the problem is you're playing it the way you meant it to be played and you're playing it in a way that's obvious to you. But when you give it to them and they haven't seen you play it, they are going to do something logical to them. And you're like, well, didn't you like when you jumped over that thing and you caught that other thing? 
Like, well, I couldn't do it. I tried it a hundred times. You got to know that that's valid and you got to watch and figure out what was obvious to you that sucked for them. And if you had a guy who was so egomaniac that he wouldn't do that, you're not going to have a good game. By that time, you also played the game for a thousand hours. So you can do that jump really well because you've been doing it for six months straight and you didn't realize that if somebody just picked it up, yeah, you have eh, to see how it's a newbie that good. Does. It's hard gotta, to do. Got to see how somebody has never seen the game, well, how they react to since it. Since we're blowing through our hour, I'll tell two other stories having to do with Pitfall, since it's one of the best-known games. Yeah. Um, I never played it. Is it any good? Yeah, By one of the best-known <laughs> designers. Um, a week before Pitfall was ready to release, there was only one life. And I was being the purist. I was being the genius, <laughs> asshole genius. And I said, look, it's it's a pure game. You play with one life, and when you die, you start over. That's all. And because we had this group synergy, we had all these other people standing behind me and said, no, no, that's not going to happen. (laughs) And they they sat sat on me and made me put in three lives with the guy who falls out of the sky and the little, you know, the ROM was already full. I had to find more bites to, to do that, of course. But it was almost going to go out as one life because I was a purist and it would have, it would have never survived the market. It wouldn't have become the... Oh, there would have been was. so many broken TVs. <laughs> but also, because pit, Pitfall is, is a big deal in, this, in the you know, origin of this industry, the other thing that I did in Pitfall is one of those things that Dan just mentioned that you don't even notice it. I mean, we did so many things in our games that the average player felt like Boy, this is better than Atari's games, but I can't tell why. And one, one very specific example in Pitfall is when you're standing on the head of an alligator and you're trying to jump to the head of the next alligator, you have to jump, you have to press the button to jump and press the stick to the right in order to jump diagonally. If you press the button and a 60th of a second later you move the stick, he's going to jump straight up. If you move the stick, and a 60th of a second press the button, he's going to run and fall into the water. So the way it was originally written, in one 60th of a second, which was our frame rate, um, you had to do both of those buttons. And that was very difficult. You had to, I mean, that was very exacting. And it didn't work. So what I did Well, it worked for really good players. Yeah. You learned it and said, man, I'm good. I can do that jump. (laughs) So what I did was, when you jumped... For three sixtieths of a second, I continued to read the joystick so that you could, if you hit them both at the same time, or you think you hit them both at the same time, as long as you hit the button first, which was actually a shorter throw. So if you did them at the same time, the button would make first. And then for three sixtieths of a second, it would read the joystick to the right. And so you could jump almost, oh, it's so much, it felt so much better. You can jump over from alligator to alligator. Now I got people tell me, 40 years later that it was the hardest game they ever played. And I said, oh, come on, you know, but, but <laughs> don't that, you know what I did? <laughs> I, I gave you 360 of a second. But that, that's a huge thing. It's this tiny little thing of reading the stick at a particular time so that it plays more easily. So that it, yeah, forgiving. It's more, a little friendly, more forgiving, a little yeah. more friendly. Yep. And again, that game probably wouldn't have been the huge success that it was and spawned, hundreds and hundreds of platform game imitators, mm-hmm. except for a couple of those little things that we did that nobody could see. Yep. Yeah. 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 
So notoriously, Grand Theft Auto started out as there was a bug in the game where the other car would chase you down and crash you, and that then changed the game into, well, those are the cops. And was there any glitch or bug that created new gameplay? Yeah, well, but that's an absolute error. Oh, uh, you're right. Yeah. No. See, we, we know every. Yeah. So we're one brain. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I don't even yeah. So so one one thing I will say is tomorrow at four o'clock we're going to spend another hour with Gary and David and Dan and we're going to talk about the the absolute era uh, in the games that came out. A boy and his blob. And there's there's a list of others. And we're going to talk about essentially just kind of preview this the the demise of Activision as we all loved it. And then rolling into the absolute era. So if that's if, if that's that, then, uh, yeah, then, then come out tomorrow and we'll talk of through that. One? That's the only one I could think of. There was clearly a bug that turned into a great feature. Nothing comes to mind, I but yes, it did happen. You it, know, it does happen on rare occasions. Larry Kaplan wanted to put a video camera, stop motion video camera, on his screen for an entire development and then turn it into a movie, because there are times you'd write code and the game, the screen would just be garbage. You know, you do one thing wrong, and the Atari Twenty Six Hundred would completely screw up and Fall destroy. Apart. Yeah. Well, so, I have I have one quick example. Okay, one quick example. It's almost what you're saying. In our in our later years, we were doing iPhone games, and we I was doing an air hockey game, and you played against the computer. So is perspective view of a air hockey thing, and you move the puck and hit, and in the back the computer is very smart and is playing against you. And hardest part of writing a symbol like that is the artificial intelligence of the guy in the back to feel like a player when he's playing against not you. Not too easy, not too not hard. Like a robot, Challenging, but you know. almost has a brain. So I was like, oh, God, I got to write that. This is going to be really hard. So first thing I do when I'm going to write something like that is I just write something very basic. I say, all right, I'm just going to write something basic to make sure that he moves to where the puck is going to be. And he's there to, ready to hit it. Well, it was only about 30 lines of code. And I obviously had a bug in it. Because I hit the puck to him, and he slides over, grabs the puck, moves around holding it, and then shoots at me and scores. And I said, what the hell was that? And I left it alone. And that was the final AI. And I never really know what that code did. But it was, wasn't what I intended. But man, did it play well. I left it alone. Yeah. <laughs> so bizarre. Any, any other questions? Oh, we've got a couple. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Dwight from the office. Yes. <laughs> Dwight from the office. I'm going to tell you, Dwight, that is some strong mustard right there. Black bear. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I know uh, theft is not a joke. <laughs> I'm always looking for like like overlooked gems from that era. Is there any game that y'all worked on that like didn't find the audience that you think it should have had? Well, yeah. I mean, I did Canyon Bomber, and Canyon Bomber also had the game Depth Charge in it. These were two of Atari's pretty successful arcade games, and I put both of them into a 2K game, and it it just it did not do it very well. I don't know if it was not marketed very well, but um, the development of that has a couple of interesting stories, since I'm just going to skip the dinner tonight, I think. Um, <laughs> the dinner? Yeah, we, we are. <laughs> forgot the dinner. I, I forgot the dinner, too. I'm not hungry. So. Yeah. So. Um, 
so um, a, a couple stories from Canyon Bomber. Um, one was, I don't know if you even remember this arcade game. I don't know if they have one out there, but two airplanes dropping bombs and the bombs go down and they knock out these balls that are worth points. And if you undercut one, they, the ones that are above have to keep falling down and filling the holes. There's a little bit of this gravity calculation. And I was right out of college and I knew gravity was 16, you know, times. 32 feet 32 per second. Feet per second squared. Per second. You know? yeah. And I sat down with a piece of paper and I said, I'm going to figure out gravity and all this. And I was working on a 6502 microprocessor that ran at one megahertz. And uh, it's after pages and pages of scribbling, I ended up turning it into two lines of assembly language. Which was basically so you're saying gravity in two lines of code. Exactly. <laughs> that you fake it is what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it did an and, an or, and an exclusive or. So it was really three lines, and it took the pixel from this row and put it into that row, leaving a blank behind by just masking, huh. and then I put it in a loop, and they looked like they fell. Yeah. So at the time when we were making Atari games, you had to have game options. Do you remember the game options? I mean, oh, yes. Atari had some stupid ones that had 1,024 game options. Yeah, and Space stuff. Invader had 112. I'm yeah. using 112, but that many so, different ways. So yes. I put in eight, eight options or whatever, and one of the options was to turn off that gravity. So it changed the game. So when you bomb dropped and it undercut some, they stayed in the same place, and you had to come at them from a slightly later trajectory to hit them instead of shooting the same shot, which because they've now fallen down, you would hit them, right? And they sent the gals over from the marketing department who were going to be writing the manual. And I'm showing them how Count Canyon Bomber works. And I'm going through all this. And I said, then there's these game options. And I went to the game option and I dropped a bomb and it went down there and it took out several and the ones didn't fall. And these girls gasped and said, how did you make them stay up like that? Now, you, you got to remember that for it to fall, I had to tell it to fall. I had to write code to make it fall. And if I skipped that code, it would stay up like that. But they believed it was real gravity. <laughs> so I knew that I'd, I'd made the suspension of disbelief where they thought this was the real world. You know, when we start with a blank screen, the ball doesn't bounce. Unless we tell it to bounce. A ball doesn't fall unless we tell it to fall. Nothing moves unless we tell it to move. It so means we're all megalomaniacs, basically. <laughs> we're God. We are God and we're making a world, right? Oh, that's fine. But, um, yeah, so they, they really thought that they should fall because they fall in the real world. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. Yeah. And what was the other Canyon Bomber story that... I don't know. Absolutely, Canyon Bomber. Well, no, actually, that was that was two stories. It was one was the creating oh, the right. creating the creating gravity, the gravity. Yes. Yeah. turned out to be nothing but that I'd learned in physics in college and everything. It was an and and or an exclusive or in a loop. Well, in answer to your question about a game that never had its due, I think the classic example is a game that was done in my office, wasn't done by me, but Hero. I mean, oh, yes. Hero is a game oh, yes. that never, no one ever talked about Hero until years, years, years later. And now most people say it's the best game ever on the platform. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a it shining is on, star. It's on everyone's top ten. Yes. You everyone's. look at everyone's yeah. top ten But list. it came out so late that yeah. I don't know how few it sold. It was it was definitely overlooked. There's it was no John doubt. Van Ryzen. Yeah. Worked in our office. I went to high school. I went to college with John Van Ryzen in engineering. And... Um, 
you know, we all had a lot. Dan and I had a lot to do with it. We play tested the hell out of it. It was amazing how deep it was. We really thought it was an incredible game. But it came out at the same time Pressure Cooker came out. It's another game that I really liked that never got its sue. But really, at the top of that list has to be Hero. That's, the, yeah. Because no one ever knew that game. Ten years after the Atari was gone, no one knew that game existed. But with emulation, suddenly it's like, Hero. Wow. Yeah. I never saw that game. Yeah, it's definitely one of the most valuable games Just to buy. Amazing. Yes. yes and it the is. patch. Yeah. You ever look at the Hero patch? Yeah. It's like 500 bucks on eBay. Yeah, it is. You got a Hero patch. Yeah. Yes, sir. With all the different games you created, and now I've learned that there were different variations and things that were different with Atari 2600, did any of those variations in the Atari 2600? cause or aggravate any of the games you create? In other words, uh, the hardware version. The version, the changes to the hardware. We were pretty careful to use, um, there are a lot of techniques that you can use that we chose not to use because we knew that the original chip wasn't supposed to work that way. So it didn't happen to us a lot at Activision because we were very careful about that. Yeah. We did funky stuff, but we did it within the rules. Yeah. So just real quick, you mentioned the patches. Yes. That's something that I've been always been curious about. How who had that idea and who who created was that just purely a marketing driven motion right there within Activision? It was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Probably well, Jim Levy? Yeah, I mentioned that when we got connected to Jim Levy, um, he was a business guy, but he was also he had worked for the record business, and so he knew how to promote products. And, you know, they accused us of being treated like rock stars, and it's not exactly right. We're more like authors of books. Yeah. You know, but yeah. because he came from That's the record fair. business, they talked about that. Yeah. And his marketing was genius. And yeah, he, was, he was absolutely brilliant. Yes. And he, he came up with the idea for the patches. Um, we had a big fight with him on the game boxes themselves is some this of the, another, I mean, question one of the things that I hated about the guys who wrote the manuals for Atari is get, get yourself Atari's <laughs> breakout game yeah, and, read and the thing. open up oh, the manual. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it starts with you're flying through space. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. And yeah. you encounter a multicolored force field. Now, come on. We know what breakout is. It's a ball that's hitting against bricks, right? Yeah. So, and then you look at the cover art. And there's some really nice cover art, you know, but it belongs, you know, in a Frazetta painting, not, not in a video game. Like because that. you look at it, you can't tell what the game is about. Right. So, we went to Levy and we, programmers, developers, and we, we went there and we said, look, the game has to show the, the game screen right on the cover. We're not going to mislead people and all this. And he was looking at all this other stuff and said, yeah, but look at all this real cool art that you can put on here. And he said, how about every game will have the game screens on the back so that it's anybody who's really curious will turn around and see the actual game screen. Yeah. And on the front, we'll just do something that is an artist representation. You know, they throw in the, the uh, colored... Rainbow, rainbow, rainbow to show swoosh. motion, you know, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So we ended up with a compromise, but we insisted that you could, if you pulled, 
picked up this box at the store, you could see what the game was going to be like. You would not be fooled. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Levy made so many brilliant marketing decisions yeah. that, that people, you know, it's, it's all about the designers. It's all about the great games. Yeah. But they wouldn't have had the same level of success without him. Yeah. Well, I will say collectively, you did it right. Yeah. Well, yes. three, three days before CES, when we were going to show Freeway, mm-hmm. It was a man running across the screen. <laughs> and we're in a meeting, and he said, hey, why don't you make it a chicken? We'll tell the story about why the chicken crossed the road, and we will hire the San Diego chicken to come to CES and advertise our games. <laughs> the San Diego chicken started out as the KGB chicken and did Padres games and such, and he was a big deal in LA, right? So... Great. I went and I actually liked the chicken graphic much better than the man graphic that I had. So I was happy to do that. Made that change in a day and a half. And he calls the San Diego chicken. San Diego chicken wants $5,000 for the, the performance or for one day's appearance and two suites at the Desert Inn Hotel, right? And our marketing guy says, I can rent a chicken suit. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but the best part of that, it's one of two suites because it was one for the chicken and one for the chicken assistant. Chicken assistant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we had our marketing guy who's probably name, I swear to God, yeah. PR guy, right? Yeah. His name is Fred Hypes. That's a good name. Yeah, that, that is a solid name. <laughs> that was his given name yeah. for PR. The original hype man, yes. Yeah. yeah. And we, he wore a chicken suit. Now, of course, Fred had the reputation of he couldn't go to lunch without destroying his tie with food. So we had a cleaning bill on the chicken suit, but it didn't come up to $5,000, so it was good. We still had the version in the back lab of the little guy, and when he got hit by the car, there was a little red splat on the Oh, my gosh. Cold splat. Splat. Wow. But that never made it out. No, that was just a joke version. Yes, just a joke. So what happened in the real game if you actually were a little guy? You just moved him back down? Same there was, thing, right? No, it's difficulty switch. If you were in the low difficulty, you get knocked back a couple rows. If you were in the up, high difficulty, you get knocked back to the beginning. Okay. Ah. So you could still con- um, handicap one player against So he other. didn't get run over in the What a lot yeah. of people don't know about the Atari 2600 is it's got two, these extra switches, which they eventually moved and almost made them invisible. And they were called the difficulty switches. They have a position A and a position B. Now, whenever we wrote a game, we had to give a different version for A and B difficulty for each of a player in a two-player game. Um, So, you know, it would have a different skill level. And the reason that was done on the Atari 2600 back in 1977 is because Dad, who played sports as a kid and had better hand-eye coordination than his kid, could be handicapped when playing his kid in a two-player head-to-head game. Interesting. And they had it backwards. It did not take long before (laughs) you had to handicap the kid in order to play with dad. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Any any other questions before we wrap? Um, Do you guys have, like, a book on, like, all these stories? (laughs) Working on it. We're working on it, yeah. We're working on it. (laughs) Give us a year. A year, okay. Give us a year. Fantastic. That's awesome. Great question. Great. And also, what time on Sunday is? Uh, 11.30. 11.30. So, so, it's, so it's 4 o'clock tomorrow for the absolute, uh, the absolute years, and then it's 11.30 on Sunday morning for, for Audacity Games. Yeah. So is tomorrow going to be recorded? Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. And Sunday will be recorded as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll let you know where you can find it and everything like that. So excellent. Yeah, a couple more questions here, then we'll wrap up. Yes. I was just um, you guys' uh, booth is right next to John Pomeroy, and I was just thinking about the parallels between uh, you got uh, you're leaving uh, Atari and starting Activision, and uh, Don Bluth and John and, and Gary leaving Disney and, and starting with Bluth. Uh, Films and video games. You guys ever uh, made that uh, conversationally or anything like that? Not really. I mean, when I think about leaving Disney, I think more about the Pixar guys because um, he had started as an animator. It was always his dream. Um, but no, I, I didn't know the whole Bluth story. Yeah, and Activision was a story where Atari did not appreciate creative people. And in the video, or in the movie business, you know, the Disney and Bluth, his reasoning would have certainly been different for us. But we said, come on, guys. I mean, we did $60 million worth of sales for you last year. We obviously know what we're doing. We're good at this. We want some financial recognition and personal recognition. And they said, no, no, no. Games are done by nameless guys back in the lab. And we said, we are going to leave Atari and we're going to found a company. And one of the founding principles is that the game designer gets credit for his work the same way a book Arthur would get it. So that was a creative difference thing, really. Um, and I don't know what the Bluth story was. Well, there was a creative slump at Walt Disney at that point. But, yeah. we've, worked, we've worked with Disney many times in the past and every lowly employee thinks they're Walt Disney. I and mean, that's the biggest they, problem with the organization. Terrible to work with. Horrible to work 23 with. 23-year-old assistant licensing person comes in and starts telling you how to make a game because they think they're Walt. Yeah. And it's like, all right, enough. So the fact that they left them, we understand that part. <laughs> yeah. Nobody from Disney in the room, is there? No. All right, one more question. Go ahead. So you were adamant on Pitfall having just one life. Do you... Um, do you feel somewhat justified in holding that position, seeing modern indie games embracing worldwide mechanics? No, I mean, you know, the, the indie movement is actually good for the video game business. If, if for no other reason than the budgets are so high that nobody can do anything original or creative unless you do it through the indie, you know, business. Um, there was the movie The Players um, starring, who was the? Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Great movie. And, you know, they do these pitches at the movie studios, and the way they try to get something sold is this, well, it's Driving Miss Daisy meets Die The Hard. Terminator. Or Die <laughs> Hard, right. And wow. they, they use that kind of... Yeah. And so if you're going to try to go into a company and say, I want you to spend $100 million making a game, and it's going to be about butterflies, all right, that's not going to happen. It has to be, well, it's just like Call of Duty, but we're setting it in medieval times, and there's something really special can happen if you pick up this magic wand, whatever. You have to pitch it as Call of Duty just to get in the door, and then you, you know, get to work on it a little bit. And if, if it doesn't turn into something, you know, very saleable very quickly, they, they cut off the tap, and, and you don't get developed. So... You know, the indie developers can do all sorts of really cool things, 
and you may like it, you may not like it, but at least it's good for the business. Otherwise, every game would be the same. And actually, that reminds me of one last story I meant to tell that's, that's about that. And it's similar to Dave's story about the, about the um, quality of games and success. At, at, at one point, we brought investors into one of our later companies, Skyworks. And um, these were a couple of people who, Yale, Princeton, top of the world, MBAs, know everything. And I was doing a pitch meeting with them, and I was explaining the video game industry to them. And I basically said, no one can predict hits, and if you do 10 games, maybe three of them are going to make money, seven of them are going to fail, may not even come out, may fail, whatever, you lost the developments. And on the three, one of them may be a giant hit, and two of them will make their money back plus a little bit. I said, that's the way the industry works. I mean, that's pretty much it. Not that different from the film industry, whatever. And the Princeton guy, who was just a little extra sharper than everybody else in the room, said, well, I have a question. And I said, yeah. He said, why don't you just do the two that make all the money? Sound, that was a real question. Did that sound sound anything like the marketing memo we got at Atari? <laughs> similar well, to the two that make all the money. Similar to and, and I said, oh, and not do the other seven or eight. He said, yeah. Similar so to over. <laughs> similar to my 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 partner, my wife's mother-in-law, who's ninety-six, who knows what I do, says he makes video games. Why can't he just make Angry Birds? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's a pianist. Why can't you just write another Mozart piece? It just What's doesn't that work that way. Why don't you just why, make why the ones that John? sell really well? Although yeah. we were in a meeting with someone in our company who said, why don't we just make our own moose and squirrel? <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were licensing That's the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. <laughs> we have a lot of stories. And it was X oh amount God. of money. And our, our, our lawyer who was in the <laughs> said... Why don't we just, well, actually, we were licensing Goofy from Disney, which is an extreme amount of money. And he said, why don't we just make our own dog? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think Moose so and some Squirrel people get it. it and some people don't. That's true. Yeah. That's life. It is. Anybody ever walks into a design meeting and they have a suit on, just run the other way. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thank I, you, guys. So, yeah. The, the time. Yeah. Thank you all for thank the time. You, everyone. Gentlemen, thank you so much. <laughs>
I actually have these items. Oh, you do? <laughs> I do. Oh, this yes, is okay. I do. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. You know, ten plus years in the arcade hobby, and I I had neither of these, and I was so smitten is the word I'm going to use <laughs> by by both of these. You know how many days I go in a, in an average year without using the word smitten? smitten? Yes. Well, we're going to use it now. This year, it may be just 364. Fair, fair enough. Because we, because we used it today, today. didn't we? Yes. Well, Brent, I, I was certainly, uh, I was rather taken, I'll say, by, okay. by these. And so I wanted to include them and make sure that it, you know other hobbyists who may not know about these items, you know, gets an opportunity to know about these items because this this was really good stuff now uh, i'll set the backstage for this so when i was visiting with uh, a friend of the show good friend you know mike thomas and troy gibbs and jason aaron you know dell uh, jason uh, dell's arcade when i was visiting with them uh, in Virginia, uh, a few weeks back, uh, we we had a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a, I guess kind of like a soldering project while while we were there that everybody uh, took part in. It was really neat, but not not getting into all of that because that, that's that's a whole different story. But while we were working on uh, working on this project, a couple things came into play, and. This first one is what's called an icy leg straightener, and this is a, this is essentially a little. It's it's a it's a palm sized. You, you hold it in your hand, and then it it essentially has these these two. I guess kind of lobes. Yeah, lobes or think think of this as it's 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 like a it's like a rectangle in three parts okay you put the ic that has the bent legs in it in the middle and then you squeeze it in your hand and then the two side sections compress and and it realigns and straightens the ic legs perfectly yep. to where i mean perfectly to the point where you then can just take take the IC out of the straightener and drop it into the socket and press on it with your thumb square and the IC will just go boop and just pop right in the socket and done. So what this does is this pre- this prevents you or stops you from trying to straighten the legs on an IC like on the edge of a table, yep. straighten them with your fingers, your hands, and you think you're getting them straight or like pressing on it with a pencil and trying to straighten them that way. It just takes all the guesswork out of it and takes all the frustration out of it. So and, where, and, uh, where this is really handy is, is like if you have a new IC that comes out of the tube, Yes, generally the legs they're they're out at an angle yes and when you use this it it straight straightens them vertically like whitney said so you can pop them right to a socket yes and then Um, the other side of this is is if you get ic's that had had questionable storage uh and the legs are all crazy yeah or like if you desolder one and you want to socket it yeah you can put it in this and help help straighten them out help, help yeah. straighten them out yes so the best way that i know to describe this is uh do you remember the the old hand exercisers that we used to have back in the 80s and the 90s where you, you you'd put you know you put them in your hand and then you you, you do the grip exercises yeah. with your hands and everything oh, like yeah. that to improve your grip strength that is exactly what this is like minus 
the curly Q, you know, the, the curly Q spring at the top, and then a section to uh, to put the IC in in the middle, and then you literally just grip it with your hand. It uses the strength of your hand. You compress it, and that compression on both sides of the IC straighten the legs. It's absolutely brilliant, and you can you flip see, it over for well, for wide ICs as well. What shocks me is that you have never seen. This. I've never seen. I've this. had one of these for years. Never seen this. That when when this was showed to me. It, I, I mean, I actually had to take a step back. <laughs> You're like, everything I know is not everything. Is a lie. Everything I know is a lie because why haven't I seen this before? This is absolutely this is witchcraft. This, this is what this witchcraft. Is. Yeah, this is that's exactly what this is. <laughs> what is this witchcraft? Yeah, what is this witchcraft? What what what? How did this thing come about? You know, it, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And again, it's called an icy leg straightener. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can pick them up for anywhere between 12 and 15 dollars a piece uh, believe it or not though brent i looked for these on amazon and amazon did not have them i ordered myself two why because you need one for your travel kit okay <laughs> so you have to have a travel in case you're, in uh, case you're out on the road need to straighten some icy legs <laughs> <laughs> hey dude hey dude it could happen, okay. So, you, so anyway. I can see you in line at a at a gas station. And all yeah. of a sudden, wait a minute, I can fix this. Wait, and run wait, out. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, hey, you need, hey, you need. I, I can I fix this. Covered. I got you covered. I'll be right back. And then you go get your travel icy leg straightener, and you know you save the day. That's how this goes. But um, but anywho, it, it's a it's just a brilliant you know bit of kit, so to say, and it's uh, it's just fantastic. Yes, I have been doing it the hard way for the past decade, and I will freely admit that. So there, there we are. The next thing, Brent, is uh, something that does not cost fourteen dollars, but is equally as handy. <laughs> these things actually, these things actually uh, have got a little bit of cost associated with them. But the, but um, this is a, what's called a Donegan headband magnifier. And see now, the one I've got it, is not near as nice as this. Okay, got it. So yeah. Okay. So you might get some money out of it. Okay, Go ahead. Fair, keep fair, going. fair enough. We the both of these, uh, the headband and the swappable magnifying lenses can be easily purchased on Amazon. We'll have we'll have a link to both. But uh, this is called an Optivisor headband magnifier. And I did get an opportunity to use this and Brent it made a believer out of me because now I do not have to look at what I'm soldering through a magnifying lamp okay and, and so i don't have to position everything in this little donut viewing circle anymore underneath my magnifying lamp like my 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 lit up fluorescent magnifying lamp okay now i can just have light over whatever i'm working on and i can actually look at this or solder on this without having something in between me okay uh, Hartley uh, Show Dog has just brought me a squeaker toy, everybody. So she wants to play with Whitney. She does. So she she went upstairs and she got a squeaker toy and she brought it down to me and uh, under the under the table and was like chewing on it, making it squeak. Uh, that's uh, that's one really good dog right there, Brent. I'll say that she's like. Whitney's my bud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Pitch it, please. Throw. So, so you and I were talking earlier about like, uh, I'll just say it. We didn't say these words. Being old and, and like like I've got two pair of glasses over here right now. Yeah. I've got a pair of glasses yeah, that I've yeah. got on so that I can see my laptop. It's they're set up for a working air quotes distance, like for reading, uh, not a book, but for reading a monitor. Mm-hmm. 
And then I've got uh, my other pair that like a f- for, for distance, but I can't see close with them. And yeah, I could go bifocal. And actually the pair that I've got for my monitor distance were bifocals, but to you to to look at a monitor i had to tilt my head back uh-huh. to use yeah. the yes. and it, so what i ended up doing is on a subsequent visit i had the bifocals taken out and i had this this work distance prescription set up into these frames gotcha where all that goes is is i can take them off and i can look down and see a tabletop just fine the way my vision is so i don't need one of those to solder when oh, I, I do. <laughs> when, when I yeah. use it is as if I'm doing something that's really fine, uh-huh. or I just I need I just need that little extra bit of magnification, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't need it for general soldering. Okay, I do because my my near vision is uh, is bad. Okay, I, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. It's bad. So when when I was introduced to these. Um, I, I, I about, you know, I about got on bended knee and said, thank you is what I about did because Brent, I do, <laughs> I, I have historically done all of my soldering, um, through my magnifying lamp. Wow. Where, that can, that's yeah. just something else that's right in your way. In oh, your, it's horrible. Oh yeah, yeah. It's horrible. And so when I was introduced to these, I, again, I pulled out the whole what it what is this witchcraft? I, I mean, I, I, everything I know is a lie. Yeah, everything I know is a lie, and my life just got instantly better because of that. And so, uh, so Brent, I did exactly what you figured I would do. I ordered two of those, one for travel, one for one for the house. And then, Brent, I, I ordered myself a, a few different uh, lens packs to go with them. So I was going to ask, how did these are interesting and they've got power kind of like almost like readers yes and and so as as they are called by the by the link i would not use this word i I would just say okay is it a you know is it a 2.5 x is it a 3x is it is it a 6x is it an 8x in my mind that's how i equate it Mm -hmm. but from an from an from an optical standpoint it's it's called a diopter okay and so you have uh lenses that are five diopters and two diopters and three diopters and four diopters and that has a um essentially a correlation to the uh to the focal length of the lens is is what that is what that correlates to as i understand it so all that being said uh yeah i I ordered myself a, a handful of the lenses and two of the uh two of the uh donegan uh, optivisors and man, I have been, uh, I've done some soldering and it's been fantastic and I absolutely love it. And again, I want to thank, uh, Mike Thomas who, who introed all or showed me all of this. And I was like, Mike, this is just, I, I mean, dude, I could give you a hug right now because <laughs> this is so awesome. I mean, you've made my life better, truly well, made my life better. Like I said, the one I've got, I don't even know what the, it it's, what the magnification is, yeah. what the, t- the times power is. Yeah. And actually it's got a double, it's got like a fold down lens inside of it so that you, it, it's oh, like, that's pretty nice. That, that's swanky. Yeah. I can't, I think I got it years ago at one of the electronic supply houses. Yeah. And it, for what I need, it works. Yeah. But I get it. my feeling is, is that as I get older and then I'll, I'll probably get to a point where, like I said, I can take my glasses off right now and look right down at my laptop that's in front of me with my show notes. Uh-huh. 
and I can read the keyboard and everything, and this is how I would solder. Yeah, okay. But I have a feeling that there will be a point in my life when that won't be the case. The, well, I'm already, And I'll have to get to something like this. And, and I'm already there, but, I, but Brent, I've got a lifetime of vision issues anyway. So, so for me... Well, that was all the years you spent in pyrotechnics. Uh, that would be it. Yes, uh, yes. Where I, I was backing up Terry before... Before, <laughs> before Terry up, was Terry. Before Terry was backing up Terry. That's exactly <laughs> right. In, in that regard. Uh, yes. But... But any anyway, uh, yeah. All, all joking aside, um, th- this is this is a huge help, and I, and I was just so so happy to to uh, to learn about these, and I wanted to share. So Brent, in in classic style, uh, all I really wound up doing was showing you everything that I spent my money on, <laughs> and then you get to sit there and laugh because it's like, well, one day, you know, where's this dude? Yeah, one day, yeah. It's I I, I could see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's qu- here's the thing. The the Donigans, um, I don't know if it's a family or a brand, but let's say old man Donigan who designed these, <laughs> he did a fantastic job because old man Donigan. yeah because the quality is there, Brent. And and I looked all over Amazon, and you can buy clones of the Donigans for a third of the price. Okay, but because what I used or what Mike had and let me use was the Donigans and it felt good. It, it was substantial. And you can even tell by the lenses that, that, that the lenses were ground. I mean, it's quality. Okay. It's everything's yeah, like the quality. one I got. They're just they're plastic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this and this is this is like really good stuff. And um and that that's why that's why I went ahead and got and got what I was exposed to. So really, really good stuff. Very happy with it. But again, it is it is a little pricey. The lens packs are, are a little expensive. You know, you're you're just you're, but you're, you're paying for it. the quality. But you're paying yeah. you're so paying those for are the glass quality. lenses. Or are they just fine? Like like if you look at mine, uh-huh. I, you can you can tell they were probably just injected plastic no 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 these are not like that okay, okay. The, the the they're they're plastic but they are i mean they are super high quality okay, plastic yeah. i mean they they've even got brent let's what's the best way to say brent they've got heft to them yeah you yeah. know what i'm saying they're like they're they're two dollar readers versus thirty dollars versus thirty dollar readers what you're paying for. yes and yeah. these would be the thirty dollar readers yeah. is what is what these would be so uh, again i'll have links in the show notes i i i do i i I mean, having used both of these, I can personally vouch for for everything that I've talked about here. It, it's it's all very good stuff, and I don't regret buying any of it for for even a minute. So there you go. So yeah, that's the running joke. So uh, Whitney just spent money. Is what Whitney did. So that's how. That's I think how you're just goes. projecting Whitney. Oh, I'm, there's no doubt about it. There's that's all I've been doing for the past eight years, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Spending my own money. <laughs> that's how it goes, man. That's that's. One of the dirty little secrets. One of the dirty little secrets. That's it. All right, Brent. Well, with that, uh, why don't we take a quick break and then let's come back and get into uh, a, a wee bit of news here. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk uh, some Spider-Man uh, pinball and uh, some Venom pinball here, and uh, some some av- some absolutely shocking news coming out of the Atari homebrew community as well that I wanted to uh, wanted to discuss. But uh, yeah, we'll see you all back here in just a minute.
Whitney, I think we're going to bring this segment in with the gentle squeaking of a blue monkey. Yeah, that's that's what it sounds like. But you know what? That's hey man, that's all good. She's bringing it over here to me, so it, it's it's funny. But uh, but Brent. We, I, I wonder if she has the same thoughts that I do about venom. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure she probably does. She, she, what she's attempting to do is drown all of this out. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? To, she's yeah. trying to keep a smile on my face. That, that's that's exactly right. Well, Brent, one thing that I that I will say is. Um, we talked about this on the last episode from from a rumor, or I guess probably a, an expected rumor perspective, and it did wind up coming true. Between this episode and the last one that we recorded, Stern did release their next Cornerstone game, pin, Pinball Machine, and it was uh, indeed Venom, and it was released at the San Diego Comic-Con, which for us at the time of this recording was just last week. Um, and I, I'm going to go through a couple of the notes here. And then, I, then Brent, as always, I appreciate your color commentary and your perspective <laughs> on this. Um, it's designed by Brian Eddy. It's art by Zombie Yeti. And the, the, the rules and the code, uh, the lead on that is Dwight Sullivan. And here's something that I thought was really neat about this is that you play uh, as a host for Venom. And there's up to four different characters that you can kind of swap out as you play and progress through the game. And it, it gives it kind of a, a, an RPG-esque kind of element, which I, I really like. Um, it, you know, it's not really the theme for me, but but there there is enough there that's interesting. I am looking forward to playing it. Uh, what, what say you, Brent? I, I don't care. Yeah, I knew that was coming. And it has nothing to coming. do yeah. with... It has nothing to do with Stern. It has yeah. nothing to do with it, 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 the the people that got working on it. Yeah. Are, are obviously top notch. Oh yeah. Uh, I just I have I, I give Spider Man on on the whole a lot of grief, and, <laughs> but and just because I think it's funny to me to poke at you and a friend <laughs> of the show. Um, I, I even I everything turns to Spider Man. Oh, everything and, does. And yes. I base that on just kind of the discussion I've had on the show already about how, what I think has ended up with the Marvel Spider-Man. That was the, basically the, the Marvel stuff was ended for me with Spider-Man. I did see Ant-Man quantum mania. Yeah. People kind of panned that. I loved it, but Uh I like that character, Yeah, which I guess kind of goes to the Spider-Man thing. And you you like what you like and you have your own reasons for it, which I get a hundred percent. Yes. Um, but I, I am, tangentially aware of venom i have i have no everything that you said i know all those words yeah but i don't i don't understand them yeah, as it relates to because enough. i understand rpg and i understand you play as a, a i understand play i understand host <laughs> and i understand four and i understand venom with a capital v as his name but i don't know what any of that means <laughs> I even I even understand RPG. <laughs> so that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> oh, I, I love you for your transparency. I'll say that. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. All right. So, so I mean, there's even a comment I put in the show notes, which is, and I'll say, you sort of have my att- attention, but on the whole, don't care. <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly what the show notes say. And, and, I've, and I've said this before, yeah. you know, 
people can argue the theme makes the game for some people. Uh-huh. People can argue the gameplay makes the game regardless of, of the game. Uh, roll, is it Rollerball? Uh, yes. The Williams game. That's an awesome game. And the theme is is a TV show that basically failed before it began. Before it began, yes. Then you can make the argument that both the theme the theme is awesome and the game is all. And it all depends on the person. We yeah. kind of talked a little bit about this about Foo Fighters. Yeah. And I've never I've not played this game yet. I honestly, I haven't even looked really looked at pictures of the play. Field. Oh my gosh, man! I, I may play it and love it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, pictures are all over. I it, it's. <laughs> theme wise it, it has no resonance with me fair so. fair enough and I, I what i will say about this is that you know i'm not i'm not really the biggest venom fan in the world uh i mean i acknowledge venom in the spider-man uh in in the, in the i guess the spider-man universe so to say from the character perspective but my love my love for spider-man does not automatically transfer to love for venom and and that's just kind of where i'm at on it but the game looks good i I mean the art looks fantastic as always um i I am i'm going to be interested to play it but i did watch a little bit of the jack danger uh intro stream on it and it it does look interesting from a from a player's perspective on how you swap the characters as venom's a symbiote and he can occupy different people and and imbue them with with powers as he as he moves from host to host and that's that's the whole concept that's really kind of the whole concept yeah Yeah, i thought venom was just one person kind of like no no venom can be one of uh venom can be one of any people is what venom can be because he he's it is essentially an alien symbiote is what it is so um so it's it's a it's it's an alien tapeworm that's what it is okay (laughs) it's a a magic tapeworm that's what that's what venom is he's a magic tapeworm i kind of wanted to put that as a show title but one i think it might make a few people gag i kind of put one up that i already like fair enough we're going to go with yours because uh, because that's just not a good visual but but it is it is technically is technical as comics can be it is technically accurate he is a magic tapeworm so so essentially that's it he is Um, a magic tapeworm why does that sound like something on that would be on uh is it not whose line is it anyway what was that improv game show that oh it was um that uh um Oh, I can picture the guy. Oh, I can picture man. all of them that were on it. Yeah, yeah. It was whose line is it? it that's anyway? what it was yeah. because it was hosted by Drew Carey. Drew and Carey, it, and yes. it had all the comedians. Yes, yes, the U.S. version was. And I was like, "You're a magic tapeworm." Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly. <laughs> I can see Ryan it. being the magic tapeworm. Exactly. But, uh, but but one thing I will say real quick here, Brent. The price points, though. I mean. We're, I mean, we're talking serious money for for this release. Yeah. I mean, you're talking sixty nine ninety nine, seven grand for a pro. Now, this is MSRP, but here's what I've okay. Let me get through this real fast, then then I'll have a commentary on this. Premiums are ninety six ninety nine, and LEs are twelve. Nine ninety nine. That's so. That's that's standing proud on van money. That's standing proud on van money, no doubt about it. And uh, inside joke there on the vans, but anyway, standing <laughs> pr- standing proud on money that could buy you a really nice van. But what I have seen, Brent, in watching the distributor pricing be published for this game, I'm not seeing deals on this from anybody. None. And so do you some, think that's because of the theme or do you think that's 
just the, the I, current way of the world. I think it's the current way of the world. And, uh, you know, I've even seen some distributors that I, that I know sell through LEs extremely quickly, still have LEs in stock and still offering them openly on Facebook saying, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, we've got three Venom LEs available, you know. Twelve nine ninety nine. Come get them. Free shipping. So yeah, they'll offer free shipping, but the LEs didn't sell through, and the and I don't see a break on the price. Well, my um, so so I have I have no, I I have no concept of the the comic community, but I would have thought I kind of look at Venom maybe incorrectly as like the Marvel equivalent of Boba Fett. Okay, you know he. He uh, he isn't not a primary Scott, character, not a primary character, but no. he is beloved. It, it, it is a beloved secondary character okay. for sure. Yes. So do you think that it didn't sell through because it just didn't resonate with people? I don't I don't think or so. Or is the edict now the price is the price? I, I think uh, I, I just think the prevailing uh, micro that leads to macro economic scenario, situations mm-hmm. that we have going on do it no favors right now. That I don't think it's a commentary on the game or the theme whatsoever. The game itself looks extremely strong. The gameplay looks really it looks good. The 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 concept behind the you know, the, the RPG esque elements of it uh, look solid. Um, you, you know the code is going to be absolutely uh, brilliant from from both a, a complexity as well as a uh, a, a depth a depth perspective. Thank you, and from a completionist standpoint because Dwight because of Dwight. Mm-hmm. It, the game's got all the the game's got all the ingredients to be an absolute uh, stunner of of a, of a of a game for Stern. I, I just think the economy is. Uh, I think the economy has has uh, headwinds here. Is, is that, that's my so, that's my opinion. The, so you're you're looking at it as as no. I was kind of looking at it as the manufacturer Stern said. You know, you're going to sell the game. If you want to sell the game, you're going to continue to be a distributor. We're we're setting the price. Well, kind of like Sony. Now, or, you know or what, Nintendo. Yeah, maybe that's happened. I I don't know that's happened, but For, may, maybe it has. So you're, but you're you're, are you were leaning toward? We're running twenty to twenty four percent inflation, depending on the market segment, and the MSRP of this game is this. So I'm going to have to ask this because at the end of the day, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it because my, all my costs are going up. All my costs are going up. Yeah. Yep. That's that's that, you know, phrase this whatever you want or you know call me an idiot either way. But that that's my I mean that, that's that's my opinion. Okay. That's my that's I, my perspective. I, I was kind of looking at it like we're going to set the price at MSRP like Sony does for PlayStation's and their equipment. Nintendo does. I mean, the only place you can get are Apple. Apple's uh-huh. a, a prime example there is no there is no discount there is i think anything that goes at walmart if you sell at walmart you have to be cheaper than anywhere else and then like a sony or a nintendo or an apple uh-huh. they get like a whatever it is dot dot 97 cents yes versus 98 yeah, that's or 99 exactly. cents. yeah you you may you may be off a couple of dollars but that that's all you're off oh, like yeah a penny yeah. like two oh, pennies yeah, if that, if that. Yeah. yes now, now again I, I i say all of what i say not knowing if stern has uh, stood tall on on fixing at a price. What I am saying though is that watching the price 
in watching the watching the distributor market and how they compete with each other and where the prices are and where I see certain distributors that that will give a couple hundred dollars off of a game I'm not seeing that right now and and uh, or historically give a couple hundred dollars off of the mm-hmm. game or this or that I'm not seeing that right now so again it, I, I think it's it's an interesting time uh, for both the distributors as well as Stern as well as customers in, in that regard so so I wonder too if the LE is well I've got an LE and there's a limited number so I'm going to get MSRP are you seeing the same thing trickle down into the premium and the pros uh-huh. oh yeah, okay I sure am yep because I see the premiums listed at ninety six ninety nine. And and that's and that's where they're that's where they're sticking. So do you have to? Now this gets me into a historical question. Have you paid? Well, if you're just noticing this now, mm-hmm. you didn't notice that with like Foo Fighters, the most the recent most recent game to Spider Man, because then in my mind I'm like, uh, there's a term for it, and I can't think of what it is. But there's a there's a there's a term in sales where you have to list the MSRP. But you can you can deal otherwise. Well, now now maybe that's the case, and maybe that does happen because I because I have not been contacting distributors, posing like I want to buy this game, because I I feel a bit bad about window shopping when I know I'm not going to buy. So I don't want to go to my distributors and and or well distri- my distributor that I normally work with or have historically bought through and pretend like I'm going to buy something when I'm not. Yeah, I, I just I don't want to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So so I haven't asked. I'm sure somebody will give us a shout with a little clarity. I would love, if they to, know. I would love to know. Yeah, I would really love to know. Speaking of Foo Fighters, it, it in this the, this uh, uh, sprung to mind. I had a text come from a, a friend of the show. And uh, uh, here it was. Uh, I'm not going to mention names. Yeah, it's uh, it's best that hey, you don't. Hey, was catching up on the podcast today and heard you talking about Foo Fighters not understanding the UFO and the Area 51 aspect. Okay. And then when he told me this, it hit me that I do remember what he had to, what he mentions here, probably from some History Channel World War II documentary that 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 I vaguely remember putting this together with the band name, but what he mentioned is wanted to relay uh, that the term Foo Fighter was a world was a, was the word allied forces used in world war two to describe UFOs. Okay. So uh, I do remember that. I remember having seen that somewhere in a documentary somewhere yes. with until they figured out whatever they were dealing with, they, called it a food they called so, it a food yeah. well now that you say that now that sounds very familiar to me and i and i and, and i remember that as well but i that i will say this that's not something i learned in school that would be no, something yeah. that i learned while watching the history channel a documentary on the history mm-hmm. channel for sure well there's i mean there's just all kinds of value in this, man. <laughs> that's, that's awesome uh, maintain your tires yeah exactly some, some uh, world history <laughs> some world history yeah exactly so we, we dive deeper into brent's inability to grasp the concept of spider-man yeah well, <laughs> well we sorted that one real quick didn't we you know i mean so we, we get through all of that well here to round out the end of the show though is something that i, I did want to bring up because this is uh the, the next two topics are are kind of near and dear to my heart and um uh, 
this is all this is all retro this is a retroactive discussion okay because the time has already passed on this but i do want to mention it simply because i'm curious if anyone else experience experience this was able to get in on it or what have you and i'm also kind of curious about thoughts on this as well but this comes uh from the atari age uh atariage.com site in the forum in the atari age store and for for those who who may not be familiar the uh, atari age is essentially the go-to place uh, on the internet for news and discussion about anything related to the 2600, 5200, 7800, the 8-bit computers, and derivative compatible systems, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, and when I say that, I'll even like toss in the ColecoVision in there because the ColecoVision could play Atari 2600 games with an adapter, okay? And, so, and Atari Age is long-running. I mean... Oh, long-running. Before I started the arcade hobby, I collected... Uh, uh, home console stuff, uh-huh. primarily Atari. Yeah, and I used Atari H back then. Heck yes. And the and the the gentleman who runs the site, his name is Albert Yerusa, and Albert is a jewel of a man. And I've talked with him on numerous occasions, met him a couple times as well. He is, I mean, he is just absolutely fantastic. The guy is an asset to the hobby, no doubt about it, because the site that he runs is top-notch. The software is excellent. I just cannot speak highly enough of Atari Age. It, it just, it, it's its absolutely fantastic. And Albert invests in it, and the forums and the store and the site, they get better over time, and that's something I've really appreciated. But what, what makes this poignant and relevant here today is the fact that Albert, about a month ago, made an announcement that he was going to be pulling a, a new, uh, just a absolutely large number of games out of the Atari Age store. And the store is the place where you can go and buy homebrews or historically have gone and buy homebrews, ports, uh, hacks, different versions, reproduction games. I mean, Albert offered a, a almost a one-stop shop for everything Atari related when it came when it came to getting new games for your, for your console. And uh, when Albert announced that he was pulling all of these games out of the store, it, the um, the 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 reason behind it was that anything with a copyrighted a copyrighted slash uh, and I'm not going to say infringed IP because that's not that's not how I want to portray this but anything that was built on a copyrighted uh, property in the past Albert was going to pull from the store you know derivative works all of that ports all of that simply because um, he did not and I'm putting words in his mouth and that's dangerous but I'm just going to say that um that, that he did not want those products in the store any longer okay and so he set a deadline for when when those games would be pulled from the store he honored that deadline but he gave everybody about uh, a good three to four week advance notice and of course that i'm sure that created an absolute frenzy on on uh you know on sales in the store but i i, I say all this brent because you remember when we were at the music city multicon last year 
and uh, Champ Games was there, and uh, Champ John Champo had his table and all of you know his uh, homebrews that he was selling, like Zookeeper and Mappy and Robotron and mm-hmm. you know Gore Farcade, you know all of just the absolute brilliant port work that he's done for the twenty six hundred. You know all those games are now gone; they're they're not available for sale in the Atari Age store any longer, and. Um, and you can't get them physically at this point in time. So did when I'm trying to remember from the Champ Games, did he did he say okay I've ported Galaxian, uh-huh. or did he call it Quaxian? Well, he would. It, it depended. Some games had a play on the name, and then some games were the actual name. Okay, arcade like. Uh, like uh, Ladybug, okay? He, he did a port of Ladybug for the 2600, and, and it was called Ladybug Arcade is what it was called. But it was still Ladybug, all right? Yeah. Zookeeper was called, his port of Zookeeper was called Zookeeper. Now, the, those were a couple of earlier ports, and then he released a port of Robotron for the 2600, but instead of being called Robotron 2084, it was called Robot Wars 2684 okay so it was a, a, a little play on words there all right but you're getting into what you said earlier use the word derivative yes derivative and and, and all of these derivative works um albert has pulled out of the out of the atari age store and it, it's a lot it's a loss to the difficult oh it's I mean, difficult dude if you do a maze game with your own twist how could you not say that's not pac-man or ladybug uh, or uh, yeah if you do or the glob yeah, how could yeah you not be the glob? exactly exactly or if you do a platformer how could you not say that well that's that's super mario brothers mm-hmm. yeah and and, and i wow. think it it's it, it creates uh it, it creates a a, a conundrum a, a situation there and i feel for al because i'm sure he wanted to steer clear of legal issues uh if if some were pending or on the horizon okay i'm sure that he had his reasons for doing this and it, but it's still when it when it's all said and done it is a loss for the community because you know a lot of absolutely brilliant atari 2600 games have disappeared now from from a from a commerce perspective of being able to acquire them now john champo as of today i checked earlier today he still sells the digital roms on his champ games website and so you can still buy the roms download them and put them on like a harmony card you know your your multi-card but some of his games didn't he have some helper electronics in the cart yes arm pro yeah they were they were they were arm arm cpu assisted and uh and so it takes a special multi-cart like the harmony in order to be able to run those okay not every multi-cart is going to be able to run john champo's games It, it, it just won't but um yeah, technically the cart just the multi cart just would not have the support for it. But uh, but it, but anyway, there there are other um, you know uh, homebrew or uh, Atari twenty six hundred, Atari fifty two hundred, seventy eight hundred developers, you know Spiceware and others who had their games pulled. It wasn't just singling out John Champo, and I, I don't I, I did not intend to say it that way. But John and Champ Games is uh, so highly regarded in the community and synonymous with such you know high quality port derivative works that that it, it almost becomes kind of one in the same you know it, it's it's just one of those things where 
you know, uh, it may not be a Lego, but you still call it a Lego, you know, and <laughs> yes, it may, it may yeah. not be miracle whip, but you still call it miracle whip. You know, it's one of those, it's one of those there's scenarios. There's a lot of people across the world. They're like, what's miracle? Whip? What's miracle whip? Yeah. It, <laughs> the yeah. best thing you've ever eaten. Yes. It's absolutely brilliant. So <laughs> as far as condiments go, it's, it's one of the Kings, but, um, but anyway, yeah, there, there's just, there, there's a hole in, in the homebrew community right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's a sad day. It really is. And, you know, there's still history to be written on how this all works its way out and what happens and whether or not we'll ever see these come back to the Atari Age store. I have a feeling that, that we won't, though. And now the whole community just gets a whole lot more fractured. And... Um, and we'll just we'll just have to see what the uh, you know what the twenty six hundred homebrew scene, fifty two hundred seventy eight hundred homebrew scene is, is going to look like a few years from now. But anyway, all that all that to say is you know if you're listening and you were uh, you know you're an Atari Age fan, a twenty six hundred fifty two hundred seventy eight hundred fan, I hope you were able to get in on this and and, and get some games before that you know before the uh, the July twenty third uh, shutdown date because uh, Albert honored that and uh, you know every, everything's gone. But uh, but where there is bad news there's also good news here uh, and the last thing i do want to bring up is uh there's a new uh, atari 7800 multi-cart uh, on the scene it's called the game drive 7800 and what makes this absolutely brilliant is uh, and Brent, i've never seen a multi-cart do this before in my life but you don't need to mod your 7800 if you're using this multi-cart because this thing has rgb output right on the cartridge that's and crazy it's crazy isn't it it's absolutely un- unreal, um, and and this is a Sega, um, uh, a Sega Master System uh, R- RGB DIN connector, and it also allows for using Sega Master System uh, controllers with the 7800 as well. So there there have been a few uh, multi carts for the 7800 over the years. They vary in, in and, I, and I have no problem saying this. They vary in quality. Okay, some of them are, are, were done well. Some of them feel like they're they're very labor intensive to work with. Um, the uh, the same company that that uh, or the same developer that that has created this has also done a game drive for the Lynx, and it is absolutely top quality, and has done a game drive for the Jaguar that is absolutely top quality as well. So this has got good pedigree behind it. I, I think this is a, a good one to have. It's sold out right now on the Atari Age store. It only comes in stock in small batches, but... Um, but anyway, it's it's one to it's one to look out for. Um, so I, just a very very unique offering on the market, and that's what I like. That's why I like to feature it because it's it's like, when's the last time you ever saw a cartridge, a multi cart give the console RGB crisp clear RGB perfect output? You don't have to touch the inside of the console at all. You just plug the cartridge in, plug in the cable, go to your PVM, RGB done. <laughs> that's nuts yeah yeah i mean it's you know it, it's it's the glory days yeah, i don't of the even I'd have to, i don't even know how. <laughs> i mean it's like how does that even work yes i mean i, I wouldn't even think you would have that kind of signaling up in the cart yeah it's, it's, it's up like, through the connect cart connector. Y- y- exactly yeah. it's like how, how does again it's magic it's just it's magic it's you know it's it's i see leg straightener magic is what it is it confounds me and i hate that it confounds me but here we are we're talking about it so. I, I was trying to get logged into atari age <laughs> yeah um because it i can't i've 
don't know what email address I used. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, but I did find my user ID and I could actually look at my profile even as a guest. And it says the last time the I joined Atari age, February 2nd, 2006. Wow. Okay. And I last visited. So I last logged on in, in May of 2015. Wow. <laughs> Dude, almost a decade. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I, I, I tried all the email. I, I'm a, I think I know what mailbox I used for that. And that, that the company that had that mailbox is, is long gone. gone. Yeah. It's gone. Well, that may be one of those things where uh, if you do want to get in touch with Albert and, and get your, uh, get your account squared away, Albert does monitor the sales at atariage.com email address. I know because I, I talked to Albert uh, quite a few times over the years, and uh, he's always very uh, he's he's always very quick on that. So I don't know, Brent, if you want back in, email him Maybe and, I should. Uh, and see if he'll help you out. I'm sure he would. But uh, that's that's what I've got as far as news. Uh, Brent, why don't, you, why don't you take us away? You, uh, there's, uh, yeah, you got the dates for the Music City Multicon yep. coming up. So I, I wanted to mention here that the, the dates for the Music City Multicon were announced. They're going to be October 27th, 8th, and 9th of, uh, of course, 2023. And it's uh, Whitney. Oh, I know I'll be there, Whitney. I don't oh, know yeah, if we I'll talked about it, if you're going to be able to make it again. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, I, I had full intention on going. This, this as we've said, is our home show uh, away from home. Mm-hmm. And it's always a ball, been every year, and uh, until David pushes me off of a loading dock. Ooh, and now, I now there's an idea. And I don't survive the fall. I, I <laughs> plan to continue to go. So Exactly. As long as you bounce, yeah, then, uh, well, then, I'm then you'll a, be I'm there. a bouncer. Yeah, fair enough. Speaking of our home show, just a reminder, Louisville Arcade Expo usually comes around in March, uh-huh. and they haven't announced the 2024 dates yet, but I just always want to kind of put that little bird, uh, yes. that little whatever it is and I, it's late Whitney that little buzz in everybody's ear yeah there you go so yeah that, that's it yeah looking forward to both shows for sure uh but yeah Music City Multicon the home show away from home and uh I, I look as forward to that as I do LAX uh no lie because uh, it's worth the drive and I am I, I'm ready for the show for sure we always see so many friends there that it's well that's, we see people you, you there you go don't right. don't don't oversell it <laughs> <laughs> right. see people we know okay fair enough okay we can end it on that note then how about it <laughs> thanks for listening everybody keep quarter clean game on we'll see you later bye <laughs> where can people find us Whitney yes they they can find us uh, all over if you if you go to our website uh, brokentoken.com you'll you'll see all of the podcast subscription links uh, on any podcast aggregator uh, just search for the word broken token you will find us and you can subscribe uh, we're available uh, on uh, well, Stitcher Radio, I think we need to pull that, Brent. I think that's a thing of the past oh, right is now. It? Yes, I'm going to have to check that, but I do believe that is uh, now defunct. Uh, but we are available to Spotify, you know, the Google Play Store, uh, iHeart, uh, Pandora, Amazon Music, yeah, e- everywhere. Uh, I do need to submit us. Everywhere for, fine podcasts are sold. Everywhere they're sold. And I do need to submit us to YouTube Music. I, I'll, I'll do that this next month to make sure that we're there. And then social media, available on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, search for Broken Token on both of them and, and you'll find us. But uh, but that, yeah, that's, that's it. So, yeah, Brent, so between... Um, tire expiration dates, a magical tapeworm, and soap. and soap, <laughs> a lot of soap talk, and a lot of soap talk. 
we squeezed um, we squeezed a show in between. Uh, it, uh, it never ceases to amaze me. Seriously, it never does. <laughs> we make it through. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, I, I, yeah. And here I am. I'm leaning against a a uh, um, a. A blue gumby squeaky toy. Squeaky monkey. Yeah. So I had, I kind of snuck it away from Hartley. Hold on, let's see here. She's at the top of the steps. Let's see. She raised her head up. Uh, no, she, already, she doesn't care. No, she doesn't. She's past caring on I, it. I had, dude, I, dude, dude she, she's like you with new pinball. She, she just, she doesn't care. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. Hard heart. <laughs> there it is. There it is. All right. She's well, like, it returned. Speaking on behalf of Show Dog Hartley. And Brent and myself, Whitney, we thank you all for listening. Uh, we're just so pleased that, that you all decided to spend your time with us. We look forward to uh, seeing you all for episode 115. And until then, keep your quarters clean and game on. Congratulations. You made it to the end of another episode of the Broken Token Podcast. I promise they'll do better next time. Just go easy on the guys. They don't have a lot to work with. Since Whitney is my dad, I'll be nice and get on to the closing business. Please visit our website at brokentoken.com for articles, reviews, restoration logs, direct show downloads, and expanded show notes for this and every episode. We want to hear your feedback, comments, rants, raves, and otherwise, both good and bad. Drop us a line via email at podcast.brokentoken.com or use the contact page on the podcast website. You can call us at 470-2-CALL-BT. That's 470-222-5528 and leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you and we might play your message on air in the next episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Broken Token and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash broken token. Brett and Whitney are always posting up new content between the official episodes and it's a great way to stay involved with the show between the shows. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and just about any other podcast directory you can think of. Just search for Broken Token and subscribe to the show. Like what you hear? Please consider leaving us a review wherever you found the show as the reviews help us in search rankings and visibility. Once again, thanks for listening, and as my dad always says, keep your quarters clean and game on. Do what? I've got faith. It can do it. <laughs> Come on. You've got faith in an old i5 Sony Vio <laughs> yeah, and was, Firefox. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Bessie. You can do it. Meanwhile, my little slightly newer but smaller and sleeker HP is still over here trying to make a decision. If the old girl can still run Audacity, we're in business. No, well, no, Audacity's running on this Windows 8 machine. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> I've got literally 7, 8, and 10 right here. <laughs> You've got three generations of compute. <laughs>